Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Yeah, whatever you want, man. Um, so we're live now, Scott. So um, no, so the table. I never thought of that. You're the first person to come up with the idea that this table re- bounces off sound and doesn't soften the. I didn't even think about that. I was thinking yeah. for like aesthetics. I was thinking for yep. the ease of putting because I I don't know if I could really drill through this nor would I want to. But um, what, what kind of material is this? You think? I don't know. It looks like it's resin, like it's cast. Yeah, it doesn't. It's it's not. It's heavy like enough a, to be it's like a plasticky thing. Yeah. It's not. It's not probably the best surface. But I want to get. Yeah. Um, I've talked to Ryan um, Ryan Lee about it, and I, we have to get serious about it. But actually, building like a, a proper table in here, yeah. um, a little longer. Yep. So we can have two people on each side, and then making it a little bit more lengthwise, and trying to hide some of the cords, so mm-hmm. we're not getting this pocket. So this is pretty much very minimal style of stuff on the table. Yep. So yep. No, that makes complete sense. Um, so Scott, don't tell people about this chair that i'm sitting in right now because we had <laughs> talked about it so i'm actually in a brand new chair right now so if you find that i fall off the mic here scott will tell you why <laughs> it's pretty cool though right now i've been on it for about five minutes all right so uh it's a chair from a company called core 360 and it's a, a chair that was designed by a friend of mine out of burlington vermont named dr turner osler he and his son uh, uh lex or alexis uh have this company that they put together they want it to, how do I put this? They want to revolutionize sitting. You know, sitting is the new smoking is what a lot of people are saying. So you see this explosion in uh, desks that go up and down and standing desks and desks with treadmills. Well, Dr. Osler, who is a former trauma surgeon and an instructor, a professor at UVM's medical school, developed this uh, stool with a rocker. And the rocker, I don't remember, it's a very long like dihedral, some strange name of the ge- um geometric shape but the object is to keep your core engaged while you're sitting so that it's like you're getting a workout which you're probably getting right now you can feel it your spine is ramrod straight up like it's supposed to be carrying your whole body and uh, but the chairs are fantastic because you get a little bit of a sort of a workout but it's engaging your core you don't get loose and people uh, you know, Gina, who is, does all does their design and marketing and stuff. And she talks to people and their stories are like my back pain went away because you're engaging your core. Very similar to the impact of CrossFit, where people start to do core workouts and then the chronic pains from traditional cultural constructs of like sitting at a desk all day mm-hmm. long go away. Um, it feels like I'm on a balance ball. That's what yep. I was saying before. And you instantly sit down and it just feels like you're rocking on a balance ball. But um, I can already feel like my, like you said, my hips are open. I feel yep. like I have more of a, what you say, pelvis opening. But yep. then also I can feel my spine is more stacked than it's ever yep. been. And ideally it's like, you can't, well, people listening, it's like I'm, I'm sitting a little bit above a, a normal like parallel squat. So yep. my legs aren't flat. They're, they're angled up a little bit. And I feel like I'm, I'm high right now yep. sitting. So I feel like I'm sitting almost on a tall bar stool, but the yep. bar stool's slightly angled down and has a almost like a like a, a ball and socket kind of thing where it's rotating yep. on top, and I, just, I feel like 
Again, it literally feels like I'm on an exercise ball. Yeah, the way to think about it, and in fact, uh, Turner has this great project uh, called the Butt on Chairs that he does for kids, where imagine you've got a, a flat plate on top of a tennis ball. That plate can rock forwards and backwards and side to side. And that's exactly what that rocker allows you to do up to a point, and then it stops. Mm -hmm. So um, that way you don't fall out you of You almost can't go back. Yeah. Because the angle just goes down, so you have that tendency. If, even if you, like I just tried going back, and I instantly want to just fall you back fall forward. fall back forward. And also that particular model has a little uh, mm -hmm. sort of a hook, a little rise in the back that sits on your, I think, a sit bone, so that it, it keeps you in uh, your... Uh, awareness of your body on the chair so you know how far back you are on it. That way you don't slide off forwards or backwards or to the side. At least that's my it, perception of it. It feels like right now that when you look at it and first get on it, it feels like you're going to fall off. But then yeah. as you sit on it, like there's no way I'm falling off this thing. It just yeah. feels... It, it, it's pretty wild right now. I'm getting used to it. It feels yeah. like I'm like in a whole new experience. Um, so how um, how long have you been doing uh, photos for them? So... Uh, a couple of years now, um, I had bumped into Turner at a uh, one of these sort of tech conferences gigs over in Burlington, and he had a couple of the chairs out. And I was like, oh, Turner, I want to take some pictures of the chair because it's very artistic and beautiful. The rocker is this beautiful, glossy red with the black chair. Mm -hmm. and, uh, some of the models have wood legs and some are um, uh, steamed and pressed plywood. So they have this really elegant form. And, uh, he gave me one, I took some pictures, he liked it. And so over the years, I've just shot more and more pictures. And, uh, and so it's been fun and I'm sort of, I proselytize it because, you know, Gina, I got Gina engaged with him to help do design work. Mm -hmm. And so his company has been really doing well because of that. And it's and, all out of Burlington. Yep. Is it, is this the, cause I, I looked up their website at the time and they only had a couple chairs on mm -hmm. it. So it's like a very minimal, like uh, selection of products. Yeah. Is it still the same? Um, well, it changes. So, uh, like, it's funny at home, I feel like I have the museum of the Core 360 chairs. <laughs> some of the early, oops, some of the early models I have in the basement, uh, they don't sell anymore, where instead of a cup, it's a flat plane with a cushion on top. And in other cases, um, you know, some are, uh, some are on uh, on wheels, some are not. So there's lots of different models, but they change. And I think they're getting ready to come out with a new model soon because they've been trying to book uh, another photo shoot. So they've got more chairs. So they just keep revamping the system. Yeah, so and making improvements. Like in some cases, the, some of the early versions, the rocker would allow you to rock so far to the side or forward, you'd fall off the chair. So now they have bumpers mm -hmm. that will go in there to stop you. Also, um, as they tried to, one of the things is if you want to revolutionize a cultural construct sitting down, that's a pretty broad thing. So they tried to put some of the chairs, some of the stools in schools. And so there were uh, requirements. They don't want kids' fingers to get mashed inside. So they're starting to add these other components to the design to make it better. Um, I don't know what's coming down the roadmap. I haven't uh, talked to them in a while. How long, you said about half hour before people... You think how long can people sit in these chairs? Some people sit in them all day long. Um, I sort of uh, Turner's um, idea is that you know if you do any one thing too long of anything is probably bad for mm -hmm. you. And so the way that I've incorporated it is I'll sit in the chair for maybe half an hour and then stand for maybe fifteen minutes. Then maybe go walk around and try and constantly vary the sort of uh, structure of my body with the use of the chair. Well, I was thinking for like podcasting. Oh, yeah. You sit down for like an hour, two hours, three hours and talk. It's, it feels like sitting down. My chairs are terrible. They're probably yeah. the worst chairs like that you could have for this. It just, they came with a set and I haven't just splurged yet because I want to get a new table. But if I got these, do you think if people sat on these for two to three hours, they wouldn't think twice about it? 
Maybe not. It depends on the person. Yeah. If they have a strong core, they probably would be much easier for them. If they have a weak core, it might be much harder. I'm, I'm curious to see because if I get to, we see about a half hour. I want to see about a half hour. I want to yep. see before how long I notice where I'm like, I got to get onto a regular chair. Yeah. I'll see. And it will happen. You're going to get tired yeah. because you're holding your upper body tight where in a chair you typically don't this is the most work i've ever done in a podcast for seven minutes in <laughs> you're breaking out in a cold sweat you see i'm drinking coffee i'm drinking water right now profusely sweating um no i, th- I think it's cool and, and like i said i want to eventually probably connect with those guys yeah. um probably later this year and just kind of like check it out Super, they have a warehouse over there they uh well or they use a novice? system of uh they have there there are these companies where they that will uh, you buy the material and then they assemble it and ship it on site on demand. And so okay. it keeps you from having to have a warehouse full of stuff. They get, uh, they train people to do it. So they have this institution, this vendor over there that does that for them. So they don't have a giant warehouse, but they have all the parts. So when people order ones, I need a small one, I just haul one, I need a short one. I want one with red, I want one with black. They can just pick and choose. The company will assemble it and ship it for them. And uh, so... It's- it's yeah. pretty cool. And you look it, at, check out his uh, uh, TED Talk it, on it. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really core, good. and it's QOR360. QOR360, Core360. Yeah, I'll have to check it out because I I looked, I have looked at it before. And like I said, it's been, since you first made the recommendation, it's been yeah. probably a year and a half to two years. Yeah, it's been a while. Maybe longer, it seems. But It's uh, it's changed a lot. They've exp- they've gotten much bigger. They have a much bigger team working on it. And uh, I, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, the thing is, like, I've had pain like kind of down the spine angle or mm-hmm. spine area probably from like mid back um upper to low like mid back and it mm-hmm. sometimes it radiates down to the lower spine yeah so i've had that for a while and it just like i can already feel everything just almost like stretching you know when you get like mm-hmm. some, like a tight muscle and you kind of stretch away and you kind of yep. feel that pull and it's like oh, almost like a little bit of relief i can feel that right now in my spine i'm like wow this is like the best my spine's felt sitting yep just it seems like i don't know it's cool it really highlights uh, your flexibility as well uh, i was shooting the video on the sizing for kids and for adults with uh, eli and so we put him on the chair and then me on the chair and we rocked our hips and you can totally see like a child's uh, you know, oh. your, your flexibility like is exactly, yeah. but there, your flexibility will improve because you're being forced to engage it all the time. And, uh, well the stretching, so I've gotten away from stretching recently when I was mm-hmm. stretching a lot, it's night and day. Oh yeah. No pain. You can just, everything you do just is like, yep. you're so loose and I, you sleep better. And it's kind of one where I was kicking myself. I'm like, how do you get out? Don't get out of stretching. Like always mobilize yep. always. And it's, do you do a lot of that? So, um, I used to do a lot more, particularly when I was in martial arts, you know, stretching is a massive part of it because mm-hmm. of what you're doing with your body. And in fact, that's where I met Turner. Dr. Osler and I studied Aikido together and, uh, with his son over yeah. in Burlington, in Burlington. Are yeah. you still doing that? No, not now. Weren't you doing jujitsu for a while? I was, I was in the pandemic hit. Yeah. So everything's been put on hold. And, uh, right now my schedule is kind of full with work. The company I work for merged, got bought out by another company. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole, you know, a giant issue with that of, uh, additional responsibilities and stuff. But then my son is older, so he's in baseball now. And yeah. so my, my calendar now is full outside of work. What, what, what age are the two kids? So Eli's nine and Eleanor's five, four, okay. uh, four years apart. Yeah. Cause I, I'm always like, I always, again, I look at people that have kids yeah. that are a little bit older and like, where are they? Yeah. Cause I just, yeah. I see the writing on the wall and it was going to happen. But, um, yeah, no, that starts adding in complexity. That's yeah. what we're finding right now. It's just like trying to get everything done in the day. It's oh, impossible. it's hard. It's impossible. And impossible. I, I've been on a big kick right now trying to figure out time wise. Mm-hmm. 
trying to maximize like the the, the time I have and try to be purposeful in the time yep. I have. And it's 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 tough. I mean, trying to learn how to use your time wisely is yep. tough. It's a skill and. There's a few people I've been trying to follow of like, how do they do it? How do yep. they leverage their time? How yep. do they focus? How do they plan? How do they prioritize? And it's a, it's a challenge right now. Yeah. Well, like, we live in a culture that thinks it rewards multitasking. And that's actually, it doesn't. It's called context uh, switching. So if you're doing one thing and you need to switch gears and do something else, you're not going to be able, you can't switch gears very rapidly. Yet we think we can. Mm-hmm. We think we can be on the cell phone and watch the kids and get something, mow the lawn, get something else done. And as humans, we're not wired that way, but we have a false sense of confidence that we do. And that's part of it. But if you were to say, all right, for the next hour, I'm just going to play with my son. And that's it. Nothing else. And for him, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. For you, it's wonderful because you get to concentrate on it. But we just don't do enough of that in this culture. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing right now is because the mo- I'm not good at multitasking. Yep. So if, if you were to talk to me and I'm on my phone, yep. I'd just be like, yeah, yeah, Scott, just a sec. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's human nature is that we focus yep. and the people that I think they say they're good at multitasking yep. are just fo- trying to fool themselves because I'm just like my, my day today, like I find my sweet spot. So I found this problem the other day is I had too much going on from beginning of the day to the end of the day. And yep. the, what I didn't have, and I, someone put this perfectly, I had no time to create. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, but I wasn't creating. And there's yep. a total difference because oh, yeah. I wasn't putting my mind on a project. Most of my day today is on autopilot. Yep. Yep. I know how to do it, like filling out, like email, talking to someone, putting out a fire, like boom, 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 it's just happening. Yep. But then it's like, okay, sit down. Now let's try to brainstorm and think and process, like where do you want to go? Where What's the next ch- task yep. challenge? That <laughs> time to go over all that, and just think deeply on a subject. Yep. My sweet spot's four hours. And and some people are different, but people are like, oh, I can do it all in a half hour. I'm like, I can't. Mm-hmm. It takes me a solid, almost, I would say 45 minutes to an hour to process the information mm-hmm. and get my head kind of around what I want to do. Yep. Then it's probably another hour of going deep into it. Then another hour of like working on it. And then in the last hour, I can feel myself like, basically getting enough of it, my brain's over like overworked at that point. I find I just kind of fizz out and I need to do something different. Yep. But four hours and that's uninterrupted. That's like nobody walk in my door. Don't call me. Don't text me. Don't, you know, I'm not checking something. I just want four hours of just on that. You, you have to, I mean, any, any creative pursuit or brainstorming requires large amounts of time to Mm -hmm. process, uh, historical things that have happened, things that you're going to bring to bear. And what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is the solution? Um, you see it in like in my sort of job doing sort of account management and also doing uh, technical work on, uh, sort of, a accounts. I have to do analysis. I have to set aside three hours at a time to analyze the data for the account. And it's not just, you know, oh, the, you know, uh, X number of pieces of content or data showed up. It's like, no, you have to really look at each piece and say, is this valid or not? Did it work for the client? Did it solve the client's problem? Did I make a mistake in the configuration? Is it there or not? And you can't do that in 15 minutes. You really need long periods of time to to optimize it. And you see that also in the creative arts. Uh, very, very few people will walk into a room and be super creative to solve a problem. Generally, they have to mull it over and work on it over a period of time to come up with a really unique, interesting solution. Um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great quote about it. He goes, if you really want to be creative, you have to be lazy at other things. Because Was that something you just said the other day in Rogan? Yeah. I listened yeah. to that. And it's, it's a good so- podcast. 
the reason I actually listened to the podcast and I so I uh, it's on Spotify. Yeah, she had the video, and I, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah, and, and some of the stuff he came up with. Like, and I'll get, we'll get in the space, but some yeah. of the stuff I was like, what? And um, <laughs> it just like it makes me your brain so small or feel so small. Yeah. But um, that was one of the things, and he said that. And the moment you just said that, I actually and I'll prove it to you later. But yeah. <laughs> I actually took a screen record. I replay it back yeah. and screen record about forty seconds, and he talked about that. He goes, yeah. "You can't." And that's where I got the creative, the create part because you need yeah. time. That's the guy who said it was you need time to do and create. And the create stuff means you punt everything else. Absolutely. And I, I just don't do that. And yeah. I know I'm at a, sta- a stage in my life and work that I I need that more than I need other stuff. Yeah. And it's 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 weird. You spend all this time trying to get busy yeah. and then you find spend all this time not to be busy so you can do stuff to get busy again. It's like the cycle. It is. It is. Well, in um, graduate school, I had a really amazing instructor. And he once told me, he goes, yeah, you can get a day job, but if you're going to do creative work, you need to set aside studio time. And you walk in that studio at X o'clock and you leave at X o'clock and you do nothing else but work on yourself. You work on your art. You might be playing music. You might be painting, taking pictures, doesn't matter. But you need long tracks of time to be able to get into the that sort of... Uh, flow state which Mm -hmm. i think is critical uh in a mental place where you're not thinking so much as processing and doing subconsciously and then arriving at what the next steps are Uh, photography has that sort of magic to it Uh, you spend years saying how do i be a better photographer oh i need a better lens or a better camera or maybe i need to get a dark room i need to make a better print and pretty soon the tools fall away and then what you're doing is you're solving for concepts i need to make someone happy i need to make them look good how do i do that so what you're doing is you're you're practicing on making the tools not be a hindrance but just be like your subconscious they uh, help support and construct your ideas so that you can arrive at the solution much more rapidly in a much more elegant fashion when you were um when you say create an art i mean you're mostly photography or do you do other stuff uh like, did, I, did you paint? The reason I ask this because yeah. I kind of have the Scott Bright rule. There's probably a million <laughs> things you do that I don't know. But, like, paint, were you painting? Did you do music? Yep. Anything like that? Or was it always photography? So, um, a bunch of stories around that. My, I come from a very musically gifted family, except for my father and I. So, when I was growing up, my mom was like, you have to play piano. I was forced to play piano for years, and I hated it. And one day, I was like, I gave up. I said, I'm not playing piano anymore. I'm going to go play baseball. I was the first athlete in my family, you know, Um, but I think uh, I never really had a talent for any of that, but I became uh, in sort of uh, seduced by photography because it was technical, Mm -hmm. all the little gears and knobs and whistles, but it also made something you could appreciate. And I really liked that. And uh, and it was hard. It took a long time to get good at. Um, But when I went to school and went to college, I studied I studied engineering for a while, I studied biology, and ended up in art history where I wanted to know the background of the decisions for what beautiful was, was coming from. Now, uh, I never took art classes in the formal way, I never took painting, but in graduate school, I did take other uh, creative pursuits that were very similar to photography, like printmaking, uh, lithography, things that were process-oriented um, for making art objects. And my favorite of all of them was sculpture and welding. It's like using the world's largest hot glue gun and you get to use steel and there's sparks and people get scared. It's wonderful. And that was what you worked with. Yeah. 
Yeah. So my, my thesis exhibition in grad school was uh, I had these giant photos uh, on the wall that had been uh, uh, scratched and painted on. And I had made put prints on top of prints on top of prints. And they were like 40 inches tall by I don't know, 10, 15 feet long. And then I had pieces of sculpture where I went to junkyards and would get big cut off pieces of steel, bring them into the studio and then weld them together to mimic the shapes that I was photographing. Was it now, was it to appear that way or was it almost to make it, um, you know, when you get like a model or you get like yeah. a, uh, what's, what's it called a model, like, like a car, but it's a smaller scale. Yeah. Was it kind of like model. that where you're trying to make it look like something and then you took it, you took it maybe a bigger st structure made it look smaller or vice well, versa. Think of it in terms like I wanted to get a viewer to enter the space and be in my, in sort of in my head space. So one of the things I was always fascinated by was the horizon line. We use it in photography as an index, a reference point. Buildings don't look right unless the horizon is parallel to the sides of the photo. But uh, the horizon can also be a metaphor for other things. That was the end of the world for Western Europeans as they traveled out in the ocean until they had a sextant, until they had other tools. They couldn't go beyond the horizon. If they went beyond land, they would be lost. So uh, in the studio, I would take pieces of steel and attach them to the wall and make an artificial horizon. Then I would take photos and put them above and below the horizon. Photos above might be the future. Photos below might be the past, where the horizon suddenly is an index marker to the user in the space. And it's not just... And this is all man-made. You made this... Oh, yeah. As a, yeah. Out of the steel or... Mm -hmm. I did steel pipes along the walls, uh, and then I made big prints of stuff like... Um, I took uh, pictures that I shot of my father and then pictures of my father when he was my age from the 60s and I would put them side by side and sort of to bring together that the passage of time between people and the relationships between, you know, fathers and sons, which that is a whole, that's a whole other new genre of chats and stories and stuff. But, um, you know, I think that's what art does. Art should make you question the things around you and it, it can be beautiful and sometimes it can be ugly. What, what, uh, so what was the flow state like for you with, with photography? Oh, there's lots of it. So uh, growing up in the deep south with the hot summers, uh, the dark room was a respite because it was the some some cases it was the only room in the house that had air conditioning. So okay. <laughs> it's like, great, I'll go in the dark room and work for a few hours. But the and you had one at your house. Oh, yeah, I've had lots of them. So okay. I built one in high school in the bathroom of our house. Uh, and then when I got to college, that was my first job was uh, I worked uh, running a dark room for a wedding uh, photographer named Scott Brower and uh, Ann Dickinson. And I did that for several years uh, working in their dark room. And that's where I really learned, uh, cut my teeth. Was on, that Florida State? Yeah, it was at Florida okay. State in Tallahassee. And that was where I really learned how to make a print, how to process film, medium format. And that's when my sort of knowledge of that process really took off. But um, I spent years making prints for other people. And you learn a lot about how other photographers treat subjects. You learn a lot about textures, quality of light. And I loved the process. You could take a piece of paper, has nothing on it, shine light on it and run it through a couple of chemical baths. And then you have this work of art that is beautiful. And you can stick it on the wall and appreciate it for the next hundred years. Do you still do that with dark rooms? No, I don't. There's no need to, or there's very little need to. I mean, is it more of kind of like the, the, uh, the romantic side of doing it more so than practical? I think so. Well, up until about maybe 10 years ago, uh, digital printing didn't have the longevity of a traditional print. I say 20 years ago. 
And what I mean by that is you could take a traditional print, photographic print. So there's two kinds. There's um, uh, paper, there's a sort of a fiber-based and then uh, plastic-based papers. And they each have a longevity. The certain materials, uh, like uh, ones based on wood fibers, uh, with you expose it to light with silver halide and develop it, and it can have a lifespan of 200 250 years if it's properly kept. An RC print, maybe 75 years, maybe 50 years, a little less. But uh, printing digital images, the longevity of them was always capped at a couple of years and you couldn't have them out in the open because the UV light would make them fade. So there have been revolutions in the technology that allow uh, pigment-based printing that now will eclipse and be have a longer lifespan than traditional prints. And you know, I gotta say, I don't miss the chemicals at all. I miss the process. I enjoyed that, and uh, but the the chemicals were pretty nasty. And over time, like I developed contact dermatitis because I was always getting you know acids and bases on my skin and not getting it washed off fully. So there was a there was some what, of the side effects of that. So like start to finish, how long before uh, a print would be actually or um, in a dark room? You bring the print in. Yeah. And then before it's developed, like what's that whole process? So um, uh, I used to throw parties in college where I would get a camera and a bunch of rolls of film and I would shoot a bunch of pictures of my friends. And then I would go into the dark room, process the film, dry it and make everybody prints before the end of the party. So, uh, so a few couple hours. Yeah, at, at most. Okay. So to process a roll of film takes, you know, eight, 10, 15, probably 20 minutes. And the longest amount of time is, excuse me, waiting on it to dry. Once it's dry, you stick it in the enlarger, expose light through it, and go through the uh, chemical baths. It's about 10 more minutes. So you can really go from shot to print in less than an hour if you're really diligent and working quick. And, and that's when you see it like on a clothesline, they're yep, all hanging. Exactly. That's just the drying process. Yep, so exactly. really, you can see the image before it dries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, isn't it funny back then that that was like a thing? Was was, to see yourself on camera, and now it's like instant. It's, instant. And like, now I take photos like, Hey, can you get a photo? You take like five, six, seven photos and just say, well, your eyes are open and one of them take yeah. it. And you don't even think twice about it. You delete, delete, delete. Back then it was like, imagine getting those photos. I'm like, God, someone's eyes closed. It's expensive. It yeah. was expensive. It's like, ah, it's My like, parents still give me grief that, you know, God damn, we spent so much money on film that you shot in high school. And I loved every minute of it. it was, I can't thank them enough for it. Um, but I will say the digital world has really changed that because you can shoot a lot and you throw away a lot. Um, but the technology also gives you the ability to do things you could never do before, like image stacking, taking 30 or 40 images of uh, a star cluster or of a bug, and then you combine them in the computer and you get an image that you physically can't see with your eye, but it is amazing. So I got to ask, the solar eclipse we just had. Yeah, the this solar? morning. Yes. yes. Was it, that's what it was, solar. It, it was wasn't a partial lunar. solar eclipse, yes. Um, so the photos you took mm -hmm. with Eli, those were this morning? Yeah. That was incredible. Oh, well, now, thank you. How big, now how, was, how zoomed in were you on that? Cause, cause <laughs> that's you, a good question. Because it's the moon is in front, so the yeah. moon is passing between the sun and the earth. Yes. Okay, and then what we see is almost a crescent moon, which mm -hmm. is really the sun, but it yep. looks like a, like a massive crescent moon. Exactly, exactly. So what time was that this morning? And give us kind of the whole rundown of that. Sure. So um, uh, I love eclipses. If you go to my Instagram page, you'll see the very first image I have is of the full eclipse that I uh, got to photograph a few years ago down in Tennessee at my grandparents' house. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it 
a full eclipse being in totality is an experience everyone should have. It's amazing. That was when they had the glasses. People, yep. Had, okay. Yep. So, uh, so I've always been a, a fan of them. I saw two of them when I was growing up, and I was like, "This is amazing!" You know, you're standing there, and all of a sudden it gets dark, and all the cows lay down, and all the birds stop chirping. They think it's night, and then it gets bright again. So- so that happened when the sun was completely behind the moon? The, yes. So the moon, okay. and that's called totality. And that's not what happened this morning. So this morning was a partial, it was what they call an annular eclipse, a ring eclipse, not annual, annular as in annual once a year. And the, uh, the totality for that eclipse was far off, way up in Canada and in the Arctic. But here we had visibility into a portion of it. And that's sort of... Uh, I got up this morning at 4 a.m., got, uh, got Eli up at 4.30, and we jumped in the car and ran over. And I have a little tiny sort of portable telescope called uh, it's a refractor. And it's, uh, it's very I – I got it used online for a couple hundred bucks. And it's designed for – specifically for photography. And then it's, it's – uh, in 35 millimeter terms, uh, with my camera, it was about say uh, 400 millimeters would be the equivalent. Okay. And then uh, I set it up on a tripod, and then I have a special solar filter that I put on the front of it. If you don't have a solar filter, a telescope will concentrate the sun's rays and will blind you permanently. So you have to be very careful of that. But uh, I'd use this telescope to photograph other eclipses before, so I have a, a system set up that works real well. So I set it up and. It, Funny enough, I go out to, uh, you know, Valcor Brewing to the bridge there and goes and do photography of like comets and stuff with Ed Gunther. Oh, yeah. yeah. And usually there's no one there but him and I and, you know, the raccoons. Today, there were a dozen people there really? hanging out, every, taking pictures. Had, was that because that was like a certain time it had, it had to be done in that certain time? It had to be done in that window, exactly. And so we're all hanging out and Eli's jumping around on rocks and the sun comes up and... And it's already started, the eclipse. And so I took a bunch of pictures and was there for about an hour, give or take. It was a long time. It was nice. For, for it to pass. Yeah. So for the as the sun rises up, then the moon moves across it. And uh, if you look at all the photos, uh, like when I had imported them into Lightroom, and you like scroll through them, you can see the moon moving across the sun. Uh, but because of the clouds and haze, uh, the images were, there were problems with the images. They're still... I'm really happy they came out really interesting. Yeah. But I was really hoping for a little bit clearer conditions. So. Um, I mean, t- t- to me, looking at it, I'm like, this looks cool. I mean, obviously, yeah. like more trained eye that I, I get. Well, there's, thank you. I appreciate th- that. There's a few yeah. things going on, but I just yeah. saw it. I'm like, that's so crazy. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm hoping to build some time lapses with them so that uh, because I shot a little bit of video, but the, uh, the telescope shook a little bit during it because there's a lot of wind and the trains were going by. And the train would go by and shake the ground, mm-hmm. and it's like I can't image when that's happening. But the I have I have maybe six hundred shots that I will tile into a time lapse at some point and get that put together. So how how fast are you clicking this? Well, it depends. Is it like so, already set, preset to have like a burst kind of effect? Well, well, it depends. So when the sun first came up with the solar filter on, it's still very very dark. So I have to crank up the sensitivity of the camera real high, and I don't like to do that because. Uh, that makes it harder to make a big print. I like to make, I, I shoot with the idea of making a big print. I might not always make prints, but that's the idea. Um, and then as the sun gets higher and higher, then it produces more light gets to the camera and then I can lower the ISO down. So the first, 
a couple dozen shots, I would shoot one every three or four seconds and it would be a longer exposure. Then as it got higher and higher and brighter and brighter, I started shooting a lot more often, one every two seconds. And, uh, and then the exposures were much shorter. So there was happening more in rapid succession. And my camera has a, like most modern, uh, mirrorless cameras have the ability to set it on interval timing where, you know, it'll, Fire a frame, wait three seconds. Fire a frame, wait three seconds. And you dictate what the wait time is. You dictate how many frames to shoot. So, can, can you also adjust the exposure and the ISO and all that as that's happening? Oh, yeah. Pretty but you don't, in astrophotography, you don't want to do that. You want to keep the exposure exactly the same uh, so that you can focus stack in the computer. It's a lot easier if the exposures are all identical, and then you will manipulate them in the computer rather than doing it in the camera. Because then you might... Uh, the sensor might make a bad reading and it might throw stuff way off and uh, you want it to be as consistent as possible from start to finish. So I saw this, uh, do you follow on Instagram the NASA and ISS? Yes. So they posted something the other day and I'm not going to have the numbers in front of me so I'm going to wing this off the top of my head. They showed a galaxy that was and you know when you start thinking of space and then yep. you really get to the point where it makes you sick and you're yep. just like, why do I even <laughs> let my mind get that big and try to comprehend it? So, and I'm taking some of this from Neil deGrasse Tyson was, so this image was 120 million, it was a galaxy, 120 million light years away. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and I'm at home, my Gina. So I was, yeah. <laughs> so we both got Gina's, G, G-I-N-A yep. versus G-E-N-A. So um, me and Gina are home and I show her, I'm like, look at this, this is incredible. And I go, I wonder how fast a light year is because I don't, I don't know. You hear light years. So I, I'm going through and I, I, I might butcher, I'm going to definitely butcher the numbers, but I think it's like a hundred and something thousand miles per second. Mm-hmm. It's some crazy number. And so I was doing the math. And I'm like a hundred and something sec per second. This is 120 million light years away. So like second, 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 second. And I'm like, my mind's already blown. Mm-hmm. And then I go, well, how is that comparable? Like, what's a light year to a human year? Mm-hmm. And I think it was like, was it 37, 57,000 years? So 57,000 human years or 30-something thousand human years is the equivalent of one light year. Yeah. And I started doing them. I'm like... Scale. The scale of the universe is off the charts. It's unfathomable. You can't even imagine you it. You can't imagine it. And then yeah. when Neil deGrasse Tyson said, well, what's your... He goes, yeah, yeah. So... He goes, the problem is, he goes, that's what you're seeing is 120 million light years away. But that's in theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, yep. that is what it looked like 120 million, million light ago. years ago. So he goes, yeah. the universe is expanding. So that's not 120 million light years from here. That's way beyond that. Yep. But he goes, we don't go that much in the weeds. But he goes, it's so big. What you're seeing is, I mean, so long ago, that, and we're just seeing that image today. And it blows my I'm like, oh. God, and then he started talking about if you were to get into a like a spaceship, uh, talking about was it quantum theory mm-hmm. about how you could like go out at a certain speed and for six months, come yeah. back in six months, and the Earth might have aged like a hundred million years, but you've aged relatively only one year. Yeah, and I thought about that. I'm like, how was that possible? <laughs> Is that because of the gravitational pulls and stuff? Like, I it's you're getting into the physics that I don't understand. Like, I start watching, so. listening to that. I'm like. Like, this seems like time travel. And he goes, time travel, like, he basically was like, time travel exists. It just, like, by science, that's how it would happen. Yeah. But by scale that we can't do yet. But conceptually, 
even trying to fathom it is uh, it's amazing. It's impossible. You know, you're like, okay, it's like, think in terms of what is the speed of light? So the sun is what, 93 million miles away? All right. Yeah. So the light from the sun takes seven minutes to get here. Seven minutes. The, wow. the sun could blow up and we wouldn't know about it for seven minutes. So, but that's, that's how wild. fast, that's how fast light travels. And then you think, okay, one light year. Okay. A hundred light years. And suddenly the scale just, it goes, it's, you really, you lose any sense of being able to index that against something of a human at human or at a human scale. How far away from the sun? You said 93, 93 million miles, 96 million miles, something like that. It, what, that's, just, that's, that's actual, that's physical. Like million miles. miles. That's our miles. miles. Okay. Yeah. Um, because the crazy thing is like the fact that you can't look at the sun, yeah. the fact that you have to wear sunscreen, the yeah. fact that you have to do all this stuff and it's 93 million. <laughs> and and yeah. the sun is relatively small. Yeah. And that's the thing that blows my mind too. When you start going to like stars and planets and, um, my favorite plant is Beetlejuice because I like the name. <laughs> but like you start plant, like you start looking at these. I mean, the the sun is the closest star. Yeah, and then it's that hot. I'm like, I can't imagine when they do those when the planets get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they yeah. show the relative size, and finally like our sun is a dot on this bigger sun. And I'm like, yeah. oh my god, I got to sit down. Like yeah. this is. You know what's funny? Um, uh, I wish Ed was here because this is his this is his sweet spot. Oh, Ed is amazing when I talk. He's yeah. coming on in a few weeks, and that's good. He. And he just it like rolls off his tongue, and he's yeah. just like he's like I'm just Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, and that's how it is. And I'm sitting there like John the floor, and then Ed gives that like Ed laugh, and just like yeah, yeah you know, it's a- <laughs> he, he's great like that. I helped him uh, set up an outreach with uh, telescopes uh, a few weeks ago when uh, what was it Beekman Town or West Shazy? One of the schools w- was able to talk to folks in the ISS. Oh yeah, uh, Beekman Town. Yeah, Beekman Town. Yeah. So um, he and I went out and we set up a couple telescopes and. Uh, had a little chat and talked about astronomy and we had some models and stuff. And he, one of the things he did to talk about scale was he took a, a, a kid and he goes, okay, you're the, uh, Scott, you're going to be the sun because you're bald head. And I'm like, great. And so <laughs> then he got a, another kid and he goes, you're going to be Mercury and Venus. And he started and he goes, we're going to walk out in the relative distance we are in reality as to how far away things are. And we didn't even get like we got four planets in we got to mars and then jupiter and then suddenly there were people running off into the woods to make the next sort of distance and it's like you just we can't we have no way to put that system in a way in which we can physically understand it usually on a day-to-day basis um well did you get to talk to the astronaut or you were part of the presentation? I wasn't part of that. I mean, this was something after hours where we okay. got together out in a park so people could look at through telescopes at stars that were coming out in the darkness. Well, and again, like how far, how long is it? If we talk about going to Mars, it's like seven months to get to Mars, yeah. which is crazy. And then, I mean, the fact that you can see Mars, which is pretty cool. Like when yep. you see like certain days and like, yep. Mar- like the red, you can see it kind of red and you had, was it you that took photos of it? Mars? Um, I haven't taken any of Mars, not in a long Some, time. Or was it Ed? Maybe Ed Maybe did? Maybe even Ed. So, yeah. Someone took photos of, it might, it might have been Ed, because I think, I think Ed has acknowledged that he's got the telescopes, but not necessarily the photography skills, yeah. so maybe it was Ed. Uh, but it was one where you could, st- you could still see it, and it was mm-hmm. pretty sharp. And he, took, he sent me a couple of the moon that he took that were incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw another one. So one of, Jupiter has how many moons? Was it 16? 16, a bunch. It has a bunch. Is it more than 16? Uh, I don't remember. It's between uh, Jupiter and Saturn, they have so many moons, and they did, they keep discovering them. So I don't well, know what the final count so, is. So they said a, a moon. I was looking at this yesterday. A moon is a satellite mm-hmm. to that that 
to the or whatever that planet is the earth they said is the largest moon in our solar system relative to its planet size wise mm-hmm. and the moon is about the width of australia yeah that Ball, makes sense. ballpark yeah um and they're talking about this one planet this not planet jupiter's moon mm-hmm. the moon itself is larger than mercury which again blows my mind how big one Jupiter of the, is. One of the fascinating things that I read was like Jupiter, um, our solar system works to have life because of the super gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter because they suck debris away from the inner planets. So it makes it safer for us to live here. And over time, those that debris coagulates together and becomes those other planets. Those are uh, moons of the gas giants. How does... so? Our soul is there a proper name for our solar system? I've always heard it called solar system. Our solar system. Yeah, there's not. It's not like the sun solar system or some weird. Because you have like the Milky Way galaxy, yep. which is we're part of that. Yep. Um, but the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is comprised of a bunch of solar systems, right? Mm-hmm. So we're one of how many in the billions? It just in the in that yep. in that galaxy is one of. However, what's beyond a galaxy? Well, there's there's galaxies and there's clusters of galaxies. So we're and part then of a cluster. Yep. And then uh, you're getting into the realm of where I, my astronomy falls apart. Most of my oh. astronomy is about image making. But it's interesting that, you know, you have, you have uh, a single, like a, a galaxy, mm-hmm. a Milky Way galaxy. But then you have galaxy, you have clusters, groups of galaxies that are attracted to each other by gravity. And then there are, um, uh, what is it called? A super cluster. There's another name for it where you have uh, giant clusters of clusters of galaxies in a region, how it's described in space. You really need a, an astronomer on here. It's it's crazy. I, I wanted to get the lady from Plattsburgh State, I mm-hmm. think. There's an astronomy department, but there yeah. was someone that was runs like the planetarium and the yeah. sol- uh, you know, and I wanted to try to get her on. Um, I'll have to try again on that because I just like, yeah. I love hearing people talk about it because like it just blows your mind how big things are. It, Oftentimes, I think people, and this is Ed, this is really what Ed does well in that outreach. It's like get someone to look through a telescope at night of something interesting, and then start to ratchet away at their misunderstanding of the universe, and get them to understand understand their humanity in relationship to it. Um, I remember I was I took a road trip across America, and I stopped in Austin, Texas, to visit some friends, and we got to visit a uh, what was it San Antonio? Uh, wherever the University of Texas is. I think it's Austin. Austin, Austin. Yep. And uh, we got to go to there. They have an observatory there with an old antique telescope from like the uh, turn of the century. This would have been 1900. And it has big gears and the guys have to spin the wheels to get it to move around. And, um, and I remember we were there one night for an outreach. And the, my friend goes, hey, let's look at a, let's look at a star cluster. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, there's one right here. And he moves the telescope around. And you look at it, and you're like, it's a fuzzy patch, all these little dots. And he's like, yeah, each of those dots is a sun with its own solar system. And my, my mind just went, gone. I was, like, blown away. And through the, you know, uh, was it a 12 or 14-inch, a giant telescope. And when you look at it, it's like you could stick your hand in there and just grab them. They look that close. And how far away were those? Oh, I have no idea. I don't it's, even remember which which Messier object it was. It's amazing that we can see it, though, with telescopes. Mm-hmm. Like, it can, 
like bringing the image that clear. Well, you know, that's and that that's an interesting point. So um, up until the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and light bulbs, lots of people could see stuff in the sky that we can't see now. So uh, you think of the guy Messier in the 1700s, the Frenchman who discovered a whole group, batch of objects in the sky that he said were not stars or they didn't look like a regular star. And so what they ended up being were galaxies, star clusters, nebula, and they're called the Messier objects. And it's one of the things that up-and-coming astronomers try to do is to be able to go out in the night sky and find all of them without needing a star chart. That's sort of one of the challenges. But um, if you go out, like, nowhere here in town, you have to go to a true dark site. And the closest one is in the southern Adirondacks. And you have to be outside, complete darkness, with no moon for about an hour. And then you can start to, with the naked eye, see fuzzy patches. Because your eyes are stuff. adjusting? Your eyes adjust. Any light pollution at all, and it goes away because of the uh, moisture in the atmosphere and other factors. We, uh, was, it the com- was the comet last year? Mm-hmm. When we went out and tried to find the comet, the problem was like, we went out every night. My, my uh, uh, wife was like, she really started to get into the planets and yeah. stuff. And, um, and I've always liked it as a kid. I mean, I think every kid grows yeah. up like liking planets in space. And I like remember looking up and we were trying to find it. And it's kind of one where I, I, I cheated. I took this, like the start is an app that you can take yep. and kind of like move it around and it'll tell you yep. everything you're looking at. But I did it because I want to know like, where am I looking? So we kind of had, and it was just above the horizon. The problem was it was just above a few trees. And naked eye was like the same thing. You can't be looking at anything. So if I pull my yep. phone out, it's kind of disrupting the view. Yep. So you're sitting there, and we, we waited, I think it was about 15 minutes to try it, and we c- couldn't find it. It was kind of yep. hazy and stuff, and then yep. I was like, well, I'll just look at, like, Scott's Instagram tomorrow, or Scott, <laughs> Scott's Facebook, and I'll just see what he saw, because I know he's going to find it. I, but we tried to, we tried so hard to, like, look at it. It was tough, and a lot of it, you play tricks with your eyes, like, yep. I think that's it, and it's like, nah, mm-hmm. not really. And well, it took, uh, it took Ed and I several days to find it. And, uh, you know, we would go out, we would meet at, uh, out by the, the bike path and we would look and look, he'd have his binoculars and I'd have my camera. Was this at night or in the morning? Um, at first it was in the morning and then as the comet moved around the sun, then we went out at night and saw it. And inevitably for both of us, it took technology for us to find it the first time. And then after that, it was a piece of cake because then you know what to look for. It's like, oh, it's that fuzzy patch. Now, I have bad eyes. I have glasses and stuff. So I leverage the technology to, to its best side so that I can see stuff. But, but you've uh, got pictures with the tail and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, I'm leveraging technology. There's no way the human eye could perceive that in our light conditions here in town. The, the, one, the one comment that I have very vivid memories of was... Um, uh, Hail Bob, Hail Bob in 97. Yeah. 97, 97, 97, yeah. And the only reason I know it, it and this was, I mean, I was seven years old at the time. So to me, this was one of those, I just remember walking out of where I went to school and they had like an open swim type thing. Yep. And you went out at night and I probably, I don't know if I told you this story, I told this to Ed, mm-hmm. you were walking through the parking lot and it was, it was probably May, June, it was late in the, it was kind of around this time. Yeah. And I remember walking out in the long days and it was probably about 7.30 at night. Yep. I remember looking up no more than probably 30, 40 degrees up. Yeah. And you could see it clear as day going across the sky. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, you didn't even have to look at it. It was yeah. like, it looked up, it was like seeing the moon. It was like yeah. right there. And it was the trippy, I've never seen, I think Haley's Comet came through a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't have the... It was a, I think it was a little earlier. It was earlier? Yeah. It didn't have like the punch that 
Uh, yeah. Hale Bopp didn't. We'll never see Hale Bopp again. That's no. I mean, Hale Bopp was very crystal clear. I remember seeing because I was in graduate school mm-hmm. and I have a couple pictures of it floating around. It was super bright, super contrasty in the sky, super easy to see. Um, fairly big too, and like yeah, close to us. Yeah, very large. Uh, Halley's Comet was very large. I was. Um, uh, I went out. I had a friend in high school named John Underwood, and he had a, a really nice telescope. And so I would go out and try and learn astrophotography with him, and we'd look at stuff. I mean, all over South Alabama, we'd drive around, and it's like, oh, this is a dark spot. We'd jump out in some farmer's field and uh, look at stuff and take pictures. And we went out looking for uh, Halley's Comet, and I remember when I finally saw it, it was like, oh, my God, it's giant. It's massive, but you couldn't see it in town. It was dim. Um, I can only imagine what it had to have been like, you know, 150 years or longer, there's no pollution. Early, with no pollution, no light. Because that's what, every 70 years? 75, yeah. So we should, in theory, see it again, depending mm-hmm. on how old you were when it came yep. through. Yeah. Because I do remember that one, but I, again, if it was before Hale Bop, I was younger. Yeah. Hale Bop, I know for a fact, was 97. Just for, I don't know why the context of yep. 97 hit, but I still, it's one of my vivid, very vivid memories of that was not. Um, it wasn't a picture I yeah. saw. It was just I, clear as day. I remember seeing it as a kid. Um, yeah. And, and now, how big are? Do you know how big comets can range from? The uh, actual I, like ball or whatever. It's I, ice, I don't, right? It's ice. Dirty ice. Ice and rocks and dirt and dust and stuff. I don't know uh, how big they can be for its visibility. How big does one have to be before you see it? Yeah. I well, think I mean, it, a lot of its distance too. Distance and also um, angle to the sun. If the tail is uh, directly away from us as it's coming in towards the sun, it'll just be a fuzzy patch. If it's to the side and the sun is illuminating the tail um, and the tail's very long, then it'd be very obvious, very easy to see. So, but. Yeah, because Hale, I mean, Hale Bop might have just been so close that it looked big yeah. or it might have been so big that it was far away yeah. and it just looked close. It also could be the reflectivity of the material that's coming off of it. You know, water and ice and cyanogen. I just whatever remember like you'd see it going across the sky, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a shooting star. It was like this slow, just, but you could see it like slowly moving. And it was only a couple of days I think you could see it. Yeah. Or maybe one or two. I don't know. But this one day it was just like crystal clear. You could just see like, you could see the tail and everything. I'm like, God, this yeah. is just trippy. Yeah, just it's see amazing. The sky. Amazing. Um, now, you've been going through... It seems like memory lane, but I've been following a lot of your photos that you've been posting. So all these photos that you're posting, are these just random, just going through like albums and finding these? So the way to think about it is, uh, you know, I spent, uh, I started taking pictures when I was 16 and then, uh, and I learned on film. And so I shot a lot of film and then went to graduate, went to undergrad and graduate school and I shot film, had a photo studio, shot film. And then I started shooting with digital cameras in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, but I still had a lot of film and film equipment that I continued to use. And so I have amassed this huge archive of negatives. And about uh, maybe eight years ago or so, I started as a project to scan all of them so that I could present them in some way and make prints. I don't have a darkroom anymore, but I want to be able to print them out. And uh, during, so I've scanned maybe... I don't know, 100,000 negatives, something like that. It's a lot. And uh, To digital. To digital. Okay. Yeah. And you could get rid of the negatives, keep it, now you have it all, right. all digitized online. Exactly. And so, um, but to scan a negative, it's, it's only a small portion. You have to spend some time cleaning it up, uh, you know, logging it. There's a lot more involved. And so uh, a couple months ago, a couple weeks, no, I say that maybe a couple of weeks ago, I got this idea. It's like, oh, my wife's like, why don't you start showing some of these images? Yeah. And I'm like, all right. So I was 
maybe not randomly going through, but I was going through and saying, all right, I want to show a black and white image today. So I'll go through and find an interesting one. And my images are organized in a couple of ways. There's artistic projects like uh, this. I have a project where I went and, you know, I went to India for a month and did nothing but photograph the stuff of my travels. And that's sort of one project. Another one is I photographed fish, uh, live fish, dead fish, fish in a, a museum. In what area? And this was in Florence. Okay. And, uh, but also I shot fish projects in, uh, um, you know, when I was 16, I shot fish I had in aquariums. So fish has always been a sort of an interesting theme of, in my image making. But then there's a lot of travels. You know, I went to South Africa a couple times and then uh, all over Europe. There are these pictures. And but a couple weeks ago, so I started going through and I'm like, well, I need a color image. What interesting color images do I have? I need something more abstract. And I'm trying to make the feed interesting. But at the same time, it's giving me the chance to sort of explore all my images and pick out ones. It's like, this would make a nice series. This might make a nice batch. And so I'm using it as a, uh, a, a creative outlet. It's like a photo of the day kind of thing. Sort of. And yeah. I, I love when you like... There's a lot of sometimes just random people that you've taken photos of or yeah. random structures. And then it's always like you kind of just give a rough sketch of where you were in time. Yeah. And, and a lot, like you said, a lot of these were you know, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. At least. And some of them are even uh, are probably some of the – I haven't shown really any of the super old ones yet. But most of them are from uh, 1987 to now. Um, and the majority of them are the film years. There's a few digital images. Like uh, the one I published today was from a hike in the Adirondacks uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe two years ago. How long does it take you to come up with these photos? Like when, so you're going through these photos roughly daily? Yeah, like um, I, there's great apps out there. I might take a couple hours on a Sunday and plan out four days worth mm -hmm. so I don't have to worry about it. But I actually enjoy getting up early in the morning, you know, get a cup of coffee and just look through the images. Oh, I like that one. Let me pull the dust spots off of it. Don't forget, these are negatives that were scanned. So they have flaws that digital images just don't have. They've got dust and scratches. In some cases, the negative was like overdeveloped or underdeveloped. So I have to cook it in Photoshop to get it to look the way I want it to look. Um, so what's what makes what's a negative? I mean, I know what they yeah. are, but like like I guess in technical terms, what are they? So uh, in from the dawn of photography, really was a uh, you take light sensitive emulsion and you dry it onto an object. It can be the object can be opaque like paper, or it can be clear like a piece of glass or film. A negative that we refer to in common nomenclature is a, uh, a thin ribbon of plastic that had a light sensitive emulsion on it, exposed it to light and then developed it. And so what you have left is a piece of plastic with an image that it has silver on it, silver halide. And that image then you can scan by shining light through it onto a digital sensor. And then you have an image in the computer. But the negative because of the process of shining light on it and then washing away everything that did not get light to it, it's an inverse image of reality. So it's an inverse image of what the print is. That's why it's called a negative and not a positive. So, so when you do, then it is a negative, like you said, inverse. When you look at it, it, you can still create the actual image through the negative. Yes, yeah. You just take the negative, you shine light through it, and then okay. you, in the computer, you invert that so that the areas in the negative that were clear 
become the dark areas in the image. The areas that is opaque in the negative then becomes the light areas of the image. So as long as you have the negative, you can create the photo. Oh yeah. Or recreate it. I can. Now can you, so anytime you take a photo back then, you always had a negative. Yeah. There's always, well, just... I, if you're shooting film, yeah, that's the whole point. There are other kinds of film. There's positive film, like slides. No transparencies. Now those you shoot it and process it and there's no negative. It goes straight to a positive. And then that's the actual film itself that you have left after it's gone through the chemical baths. Um, so when I was doing actually a question for you, light, mm -hmm. how does light work in photography? And uh, I know this is a loaded question and you can go uh, a lot of different ways, but just the idea of like, how, so the reason I say it's like I get an external flash from my camera. Yep. And makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. I always wonder, am I using it correctly? And I've tried to like YouTube it and stuff, but yeah. it, you know, it's just kind of a simple like Canon, pop it on, turn it around. And my thought from what I've gathered is that you're supposed to bounce it off. If I'm taking a photo this way, typically you'd like bounce it off the wall mm -hmm. to reflect and then add more light to the subject. So um, you got to take a step back and say, uh, there's, you're, there's nothing you're supposed to do. Okay. Everything is about... What are you trying to solve? What is the problem? So you have a dark room and you want to take a picture. You don't have to use a flash, but you want to use a flash. Well, for what purpose? And that's really, um, you know, I spent years trying to figure out, I have an idea in my head. I want to get it on a can. I want to make a print. How do I get from the idea in my head to the print? Well, in some cases, it takes a special camera or a special film or a flash unit to get what I want. So to give you an idea, a flash unit uh, produces a whole lot of light very, very, very quickly in a tiny little fragment of time. So what that will allow you to do is to freeze motion. And also, um, it doesn't get hot because it's not always on. So there's benefits to that kind of a light source. But there's lots of different light sources. You can have uh, an incandescent bulb can be a light source, but it gets hot, will burn you. You need to plug it in the wall. There's lots of other... Uh, components to it. So uh, light in photography is like part of the tool set. It's like, how do you use them? It's the medium, to be honest. Light and film together is the medium that you're working in. And you manipulate light to say things in the image for you. Soft light is very flattering to people. It makes them look better. Uh, you don't get dark shadows under the eyes. It diffuses it up. Uh, uh, de-emphasizes wrinkles on faces. So soft light tends to be the uh, go-to light source for portraits. Um, you see it in the painting world as well. A lot of the traditional like Renaissance painters uh, uh, will have used uh, light sources like these windows, soft north-facing light coming in because it de-emphasizes wrinkles and makes people look better. Uh, sharp light lets you uh, see texture more easily because it, the shadows that are cast with sharp light are darker. And so uh, the light area and the dark area having a more uh, a larger differential then will show off that texture in a more dramatic way. So like late in the evening, you'll see light will go across the beach and all the little footprints in the sand become a lot more obvious than they do at noon because the light is coming to the side and each one of the little footprints is casting a shadow. So... Cause I, I got a couple of light setups, so a lot of times when I yeah. do like video or stuff. Yeah. I always have, I have this light coming in, yep. and then I forgot the names of I'm bad. I have a uh, a light with like a diffuser, a kind of yep. like a, has a, a cloth yep. on. I mean, you actually see it right behind you, but and that one I usually put about, mm -hmm. and this might like again 
layman's research here, but about 30 degrees off center. Like the camera's yep. here, about 30 degrees roughly. Yep. To, so that hits the face, a little softer light. And I played with like the, uh, uh, whatever the the lights are, to, uh, Kelvins or whatever the, what's that Kelvins? What's the um, IPUs? Does that make sense? Yeah. So Kelvins are the reference to color balance. Yep. So the higher the number, the lower the number of references, whether it's warmer, more yellow and red, or more cooler, uh, sort of more bluish mm -hmm. color. And that way you can uh, adjust those to match the ambient light that you're in. Light in the shade outside is more blue than the light coming directly from the sun, which is more yellow. Because the shadow areas of like underneath those trees is actually the light reflected off the blue sky. So it's going to be cooler because it's blue. Oh. Um, uh, so what you're referring to is like using lights and changing them in reference to someone's face. Uh, there are, you could spend a lifetime studying how to move lights and manipulate lights to just shoot portraits, just to make people look better or look worse, depending on what your needs are. What are you trying to achieve? What's the uh, backlight or hair light? Hair light, And backlight. that one too, because it, it makes the depth, adds depth to yep. the photo. And it's like- God I'm, light, it's, there's lots God of lights. Yeah. Another way to think of it is, um, and this is how I would teach it when I was teaching photography, is like, imagine, um, you have an object like a, uh, a melon or a, a ball of some sort. A ball, by if it's flat, looks like just a circle. You have to give it shadow to be able to show three-dimensional depth. And use of like a hair light and a side light and a fill light allows you to uh, fill out that object in three-dimensional space. And so it can be represented in, uh, in the camera, in a video or in a still photo. So when you look at a three-dimensional object, you have to think in terms of how do I get light to reference this as a three-dimensional object? So if you're taking a photo of, say, the chair, yeah. you have to obviously, because it's an object, add the yeah. three-dimensional layers to it. Yeah. So you have backlight, you have, you know, you have the mm -hmm. light in the front, you have, you have you work with what, like a three-light system? It that? depends. So um, every object is different. Um, so the chair that you're sitting on is very special because it has a rocker mechanism. Mm -hmm. So as one of the ideas was I sit down with the art director and say, what are you trying to sell with this chair? Well, we need to show the rocker. That's the technology. We need to show it comes in different sizes. So you got multiple chairs have to be photographed together. And then, uh, well, what kind of legs? Well, there's three kinds of legs. Well, let's add another chair. Some of the legs might be chrome, which is a unique problem in photography because then it reflects everything in your studio so uh for the chairs i might have a, a soft light on top of the chairs and then i might have uh, cards reflecting light from underneath have a spotlight on the rocker uh, i might have two fill lights in the back so that the background has no shadows so you only see the chair floating in space and the way I work is that I build an image one piece at the time. Just like when I pho photograph a person, when I do a portrait. You remember the videos I shot at yeah, CrossFit? Yeah, which was incredible. Same way. So you take a person, you sit them down, and you say, okay, what, is my, what am I doing here? I have to show this person. So I have to, they're a person, not a drawing. So I need to show them three-dimensionally. So I have one light on the side. That's my quote-unquote main light. Then I have to look at the face and say, um, are the shadows too dark? Does it make them look mean or evil? It's like, oh yeah, so let's add some light. So we do a fill light. And it's like, okay, so the background is very dark. And then you have this person floating in space. Well, I need to separate them more from the background. So I put a hair light. So that way you've got texture of the hair, 
main light, fill light, and then it's like, oh, the background's still too dark, so I gotta put a light in the background to light the space so that it looks natural. Um, yeah, because the way you did it, like you brought it out, like in that situation, the person was very illuminated. Yeah. And, and the same thing, it's like he had, it was very, like everything just looked very, um, like I say high structure, I'm going by like Instagram filters, but there yeah. was a lot of, you could pick everything out, pick the person, it was a lot of detail. Yeah. Um, a lot of contrast. You yep. could easily, and even the background, you could still make out the stuff in the background. But it was, it was crazy because you're in almost like a like a. I think we were almost like in a lighted space, and it looked dark. Mm-hmm. Like it looked like you were like in a studio, and you really weren't. Um, now, hair light is that? I've always been my through my research. That's always up mm-hmm. or no? Well, it depends. It depends on what you're trying to get across. Okay. So uh, you can kind of see where mine is, and yep. if I'm sit- I use that if I'm sitting on yep. the chair. I don't know if that's correct, but I kind of just played around with it. Well, a lot of it is experimentation. Mm-hmm. Every person is different. Uh, like uh, I would, I never light the uh, different people with the same exact lighting. I always get it manipulated so that it makes. Uh, whatever I'm trying to get across of their personality through the image. Um, a hair light, for some people uh, who have a lot of hair, it might be up high and off to the side. For someone who's bald, absolutely not, because then you would get a shiny reflections, which don't are not flattering at all, um, speaking from experience as a bald <laughs> man. Um, the, you know, but it really depends. Uh, there's lots of it depends. And you know, the images that we shot like in, uh, uh, at CFP, uh, the the object was to show the person in the space, but separate them from it so that you knew it was a, a workout space. You could recognize it, but you don't want that to be the point. The point is them getting across that what they get out of the out of the relationship with CFP. And I did it in multiple ways. So I did it not only with light, but also I threw the background out of focus. I used other tools in the camera to separate them. I can see it's a gym. But why is it blurry? It doesn't need to be clear because as a, a viewer, I can make that leap. I can make that jump. So you're saying because it, because it's blurry, but I can still see enough focus to know what it yep. is. But again, it takes it doesn't take my eyes away from what I should be concentrating on. Yep. It, it's such a cool – and everything you do is manual, right? You, you manual focus on everything? Well, no, it depends. It depends. So in some cases, uh, uh, like if I'm shooting sports, autofocus is a godsend. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm shooting things like uh, stars – you have to use manual focus. It's the only way to get it sharp and right. Um, it really depends. And some lenses uh, are not autofocus. You can, you can only use them manually, like telescopes, for instance. They have focusing mechanisms, but uh, they're very expensive. But when I'm doing commercial photo work, uh, oftentimes I will use autofocus to get close and then I'll fine tune it with manual focus. And there's some reasons, technical reasons for that, like on the chair. Um, if I'm trying to manipulate the depth of field, do I want the background blurry or not? Uh, autofocus grabs a contrasty piece of the object and says, that's in focus. And it is. But it might not be everything I need in focus. I might need to manipulate it a little bit. So there's a, there's a good and bad to it. Now, sports photography. Mm-hmm. Do you do that often? Probably now a little bit more like if Eli's playing baseball or something? A little bit. A little bit. Uh, uh, 
or like movement, I guess. Yeah, I enjoy uh, sports photography when it's non-traditional sports. You know, baseball is is okay. It's fun. I love shooting my son, Eli, and, and, uh, you know, shooting his team. Um, Like Aikido and martial arts is a lot of fun. It's really hard. That's what I like is the challenge because it's very dark. It's indoors. I, I can't bring in lights. Well, you, you also have to understand the movement patterns yeah. because then it's like I get the angle because I know this move or this this grapple that this guy's going to do. Yeah. You saw that in the images that I shot of you guys in uh, CFP, yeah. the sports images. Uh, having done the movements, I know where it, the, I know where I need to shoot to get the right uh, framing and the moment of execution. And it takes experience. That's why... Professional sports photographers tend to be a, a very specialized lot. Like a niche? Yeah, it's um, totally Special niche. cameras too, or is it more, more of the, like a lot of it has to do with the flash, or not flash, uh, shutter speed? Yeah, shutter speed, also manipulation. Um, a lot of times some of the cameras have what's called trap focus. Uh, you set the camera to only fire a frame when an object enters it and actually enters the frame, the plane of focus so that you don't have to catch it. It catches itself for you. In other cases, it's uh, access. Most, in my mind, most of the great sports photos are about being at the right position to the players at the right time with good light. Um, I've worked with some sports photographers in Florida and uh, they would go into a basketball game and this was in the days of film and they would hang up in the rafters giant strobe lights so that they could illuminate the entire basketball court or the entire hockey arena at once. So one guy on the ground is shooting and he has dozens of these giant strobe units are in the ceiling to illuminate and provide enough light for the whole arena so that they could freeze motion. Otherwise, the film was not sensitive enough to light to give you a shutter speed to freeze motion. In your opinion, I I, I have, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what is the most iconic sports photo of all time that you can think of? Oh, God, there's tons. Off the the top of my head, there's the one of... uh, uh, You're going to get the one I'm thinking of, I think. uh, The one of, um, uh, what's his name, the basketball player... Um, Michael Jordan? Yeah. When he's dunking? Yeah. When he's up in the yep. air? Yeah. From yep. the foul line? Yep. That's um, it. The, the one I was actually thinking of, and the reason I say this is, it was sports, but it was kind of like, I don't think, and I want to ask your opinion on this, because I think this was a photo that was probably done with not a lot of technicality, more mm-hmm. just in the moment, but just iconic, right mm-hmm. place, right time. Because that one, there was obviously some, you know, work being done because he was going through the air and kind yep. of, you know, tongue out and like going to, yeah. to dunk it. I'm thinking of uh, 1980, Miracle on Ice. Oh, yeah. And the guy's arms in the air, and they're all, like, celebrating. Yep. If you really, like, if you really look at that photo, I could took that photo on the sideline. Yep. I mean, it really, there really wasn't a lot of, I think, technicality to it. It was just more of, like, photo. And it was like, wow, that, that's actually a really cool. See, but uh, I, I will agree with you and disagree. Okay. So it's the classic thing of, you know, a uh, guy walks into an art gallery and sees a scribble on the wall and says, my five-year-old can do that. Yeah. And it's like, well... Yeah, your five-year-old can scribble, but can he put it in the context of 5,000 years of culture and art? And can, did he do it with a color palette that matched a particular concept? So when you have something like a bunch of guys on ice throwing their arms up celebrating, okay? The guy that's on the ice with the camera and the wide-angle lens made the decision to get close to them, to get the space around them so that you could see what was going on. Every one of those is a decision he made 
an artistic decision. It is not happenstance. Do happy accidents happen? Absolutely. Professionals don't work with happy accidents. You have to plan that out. So like the shot of um, Michael Jordan, strobe units in the rafters. Everything was black around Every him. Yeah. And that way he could separate the player from the space around it. He mm-hmm. wanted it to be about him and his prowess on the, uh, uh, on the court. And that's what, uh, that's, what, that's what separates professionals from everyone else, is they're able to build that image. They're, they don't get into the right place at the right time by accident. They choose where to shoot from. They choose what camera, what lens, what light, what time of day. All of this comes together. I knew together. you were going to say this, because as soon as I said it, I'm like, there's got to be more to it than yeah. it looks like. Because, again, <clears throat> like, that's one of the, the most, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot, but that like, just always sticks out to me as... Yeah one of the greatest sports moments of all time. And then here you got this iconic yep. photo that if somebody sees it, they know exactly what game, they know the score, they know everything about it. Because yep. um, the Michael Jordan dunk, I remember the photo. Yep. But if you were to ask me, I'm like, it was obviously the dunk, I'm assuming the dunk competition at some point yep. in time. I don't know what year, I don't know anything about it. But like 1980 Olympics, like everybody knows to the day when that yep. happened. Um, that was the only reason why it stuck out. I mean, there's plenty of other ones if we like, if you really... You know, the, the Muhammad Ali, when he's got his arm hooked, oh, yeah. hooked like There's that, tons, that's such an iconic tons. photo. And yeah. you kind of think of a lot of like Sports Illustrated photos. Or, um, uh, was it, um, I think I think it was Roger Maris. Maybe it was Hank Aaron. It was a home run. And they had the picture of the guy hitting the home run. The mm-hmm. bat was dropped, but yeah. they saw the whole stadium. Yep. And I can't remember <laughs> which one it was, but I want to say it was Roger Maris breaking 60. Um, breaking 60. It, it may have been. And it was just kind of like this swing, and then it was just like, you saw him like kind of like with the follow through and the ball yeah. was going. It was kind of you just saw the stadium. So it wasn't just him, but like you said it was the the wide angle to show the space, show where you are. And exactly. um, well, and there's lots of examples of that. Like even in uh, like uh, sports car racing, Formula One. Mm-hmm. Okay, cars are moving very rapidly, and you can only be in certain places in certain positions as a photographer or as a fan without being in danger. So you have to pick and choose those very carefully. Then you have to choose the right equipment to shoot there, and you have to be you know. You, you have to make a lot of decisions and you're going to make a lot of mistakes before you start making really good decisions to make really amazing and excellent photos. So if I was to go out and take a camera, ideally someone takes their phone out and takes a picture of a NASCAR race and the cars are going around, are we typically going to see like the blur of the car on a normal camera? It really depends because you don't have, um, how bright is it? Is it night, daytime? Are you 100 feet from the car or one foot from the car? All of those will have a dramatic impact on blurriness or clarity of the image. Does your camera have a very high sensitivity to light or very low? That The shutter speed that or the, the electronic snap of the image, that sort of freezing of time, uh, will uh, impact whether it's blurry or not. Because how fast is the car moving in a relationship? A car moving at 100 miles an hour, a hundred feet away is very different than one foot away and camera more blurry one foot away. Yes. Gotcha. Because your uh, relationship to it. Um, So, you know, it's uh, perspective then really does count. So, uh, but if you're the difference between like uh, uh, an iPhone camera is dramatic, not in that it doesn't have the resolution. It's just that it doesn't have the, uh, pull of a telephoto lens for instance a glass telephoto lens not an artificial one built into the software um that that'll make a difference as well there's lots of things that impact it um do you take a lot of photos on your camera or on your phone 
I, uh, on camera. On some, the some. Uh, I like it and I don't like it. I love it and hate it at the same time. I think it makes the comp, like the the everyman, be able to take a photo and be yeah. like, because the one I have is like three lenses and it's got it's got the it has a, wide, a pretty good yeah. wide lens and and uh, good aperture. Like yep. you know, you get, lets a lot of light in. And then was I was fascinated by it. I didn't really understand this, and I talked to a couple of people. Like when you go into the f- uh, film, you know, filming in 4K, you, yeah. like some of these cameras are incredible but if you go 4k at like 60 frames per second yeah it almost looks too unrealistic because it's mm-hmm. so sharp yep and i didn't realize that most i say most films a lot of films are fr- are shot like 24 frames mm-hmm. per second because they're a little more cinematic yep. or if you go too many frames per second it looks almost too real yep where it takes away kind of like that like creative edginess Absolutely. and i always thought it would be the opposite i thought like oh these guys are going like you know 60 frames per second all day long and then you yeah. get to the point where you see those like that's almost too freaky clear yeah. like it's absolutely well that's one of the problems uh tv is uh having now is that i can see you're getting nervous on the chair I, you know what's actually <laughs> happening it's not that i'm falling i i'm like it's almost like the angle that i'm at yeah it's going because the thing is this okay so back to this chair we're at an hour and 15 it was funny it was a it was just under an hour when i started to feel it the it's a smaller seat and typically when you're sitting on a chair, you have a lot of surface area where like your legs are on a lot and this doesn't, I mean, it's basically, it's like basically your backside and that's it. And the problem is it keeps jamming under like the upper part of my thighs because it's like jamming in. That's almost giving them like a, like putting them to sleep, like a dead leg. So I keep shifting because like my leg feels like it's falling asleep. (laughs) I feel great. My core is like working, but it's, it's not one where you can just kind of like shift. You can't really shift in this chair. It moves, but Mm -hmm. You gotta, yep. Yeah, so about, it was about an hour. About an hour. That's good. Hour, which is That's good. a good start. It, feel, it feels great. I don't want to like, yeah. get off the chair. Just like my yeah. legs are going to sleep a little bit. Um, so where were we before the chair? Oh, jeez. Well, um, oh, the frames per second. Yeah. So so one of the one of the, on my phone, I have, well, we actually, this was a few years ago we went to that when we were doing the CrossFit games, we went there. And I remember getting a photo and it was one of the events and it was a running event and the, the girls were doing it and they were running by and I, this is right after I knew my camera mm-hmm. could do all these funky things. I'm like, I'm going 4K, 60 frames per second. And here you go. And you get like the top, the top yeah. woman in the world and they're like running by and I remember taking it and I ended up rewatching it. I'm like, it's almost too freaky. How mm-hmm. like, like it's almost like they're going to like run through the camera at you. I'm like, it, it, it was, it was almost uncomfortably clear yeah. That I was like, I really should have taken this down to like a 30 frames per second. And then, you know, maybe yeah, 4K at 30 frames per second probably would have been fine. But it just would have made it a little smoother, which you probably see on the... What you're responding to is a personal preference on your part. Mm-hmm. So the world doesn't care what it's shot in. You, What you care about is how is your perception of it after afterwards. You want, you're like, the way you describe it, you're like, I want to see it more cinematically. I want to see it like... Uh, you know, chariots of fire, you know, slow-mo at the finish line. Yeah. And it's like, well, why? Why do you want to see it that way? Wait, the 60 frames per second should have been slower. I could have slowed that down. You could have. Yeah. You could have. But you, didn't, but you, you realize that afterwards. It, it was to the point where I looked at it. I'm like, something's not right. Like, it almost looks too clear. And I've yeah. done that before with, like, my kids. I'm like, nah, this looks weird. It almost, it, <clears throat> it, it's a little too real. So one of the things that filmmakers will do, and it's sort of one of the tricks, is to downsample. You shoot something at a higher rate and then okay. downsample it in, uh, in software like Premiere or Final Cut. And then uh, that way you get more of a cinematic 
feel to it. And I do that a lot. Like I shoot videos for like the chair company and other people. And uh, I'll shoot at a rate, at a frame rate and at a resolution that gives me a lot of flexibility. So maybe uh, shoot it, you know, 30, 29.9 frames per second instead of, you know, something higher. Uh, if the point is not to freeze motion, if the point is to uh, sell something, uh, I might slow it down, make it a little bit blurrier. And what that does is that triggers stuff inside of our heads about nostalgia and things like when we were kids. Now, I reference cultural constructs from the 70s and 80s. Um, oh, young people today are referencing cultural constructs of what nostalgia is from the 80s and 90s or 90s and 2000s, and that is very different. So they see the world and reference the cues differently than I do, differently than you do. Well, we take uh, like referencing. So I grew up pretty much the 90s was my childhood. I was born in 89, so that was the 90s, early 2000s. Yep. And uh, you're starting to see when they talk about like fashion and trends coming back, you're seeing a lot of like 90s stuff come back, mm -hmm. like a lot of like the like vintage clothes, which yeah. for you, you're like, that was like, <laughs> that was college or whatever. But when you, but when you actually, you look at it like these old, you know, there, there's actually a um, Plattsburgh vintage. I don't know if you've heard of. I heard it. Okay. So yeah. he, you know, as a kid I know, and uh, I didn't know he was in the like clothes and fashion, but you start looking at all this stuff and it's like stuff you get from the nineties. And it was so funny because you, you get these, WWF like before WWE WWF yeah. shirts you have like the rock on them or you'd have these you know um, it could even be like guest jeans like all mm -hmm. these old brands you never see anymore like Steve Madden and, and you start looking at these things that I remember as a kid like oh my god I remember that as a young child and then uh, now people are wearing them or, or the uh, almost like the I don't want to call them tearaway basketball pants but like yeah. the jackets like the windbreaker yep. you know you know the ones I'm talking about that kind of have like the sleeves that go mm -hmm. up almost like you're wearing like a shoulder pads on yep. these things yeah like yeah like you'd see like the bowls where you see like a team come running out and you know basketball and you're seeing all these windbreakers and it's funny how fashion does start to come back around mm -hmm. because again I think a lot of it's nostalgic because you're seeing a lot of uh, lately like um, playing cards are becoming popular. Mm -hmm. Like I know, like Pokemon has become very, very popular again. Like yeah. I remember the original Pokemon coming out. We trade those on the playground. They got them yep. banned from school because kids were exactly. And these, and that was back ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine when it really took off in the states. And uh, now you're starting to see it come full circle where mm -hmm. people are like collecting them. I know for a fact I have cards still. I have to look for them, mm -hmm. but I kind of want to be like, how much are these <laughs> worth? Because I had a lot of I haven't touched in twenty something years, yeah. but. And I kept good care of them. They weren't like, so part of me is like, I got a gold mine sitting like somewhere in my, you know. Seeing that stuff come back that from your own childhood and your teenage years, does it make you feel older? Uh, older, like, do I feel like, makes me feel just like, I'm like, my God, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah, but. I, you know what? I actually, oddly enough, it almost makes you feel like younger, like I'm going back in time. So mm -hmm. my, my mom it's kind of weird. I had, I was thinking about this the other day. So my mom like doesn't throw away anything. Mm -hmm. So the amount of stuff that has come back into my life over the last three years, because she's kept it from my childhood and yeah. now my sons play with it or my, or my daughter and there's stuff. I had a friend that came over about a month. He goes, I remember, I goes, well, I had a castle just like that. I'm like, well, no, that actually was my castle. <laughs> that is my castle from 25 years ago. But when you start looking at this stuff, it's like my son, like Spider-Man, yeah. a huge Spider-Man guy. My son likes, um, not as much ninja. We got some Ninja Turtles. He's got Ninja Turtle socks, but he's not as big in the Ninja Turtles. But um, we start looking at. I would say, like I was Ninja Turtles. I was GI Joe, Power Ranger, 
um, Spider-Man. I mean, that was kind of my childhood when it came to like superhero guys. I yep. was never Batman. I was never in Superman. I was like loved Spider-Man, but GI Joe's had all the little figurines. Yep. Um, and I, I'm slowly coming full circle where I feel that it's making a comeback slightly, which mm-hmm. is weird. Like when I give him a shirt and he's got Spider-Man, they're still making Spider-Man. They're still making oh yeah Ninja Turtles and. And a lot of it is, I think, I'm like, well, you know what? The people making these are in their 20s and 30s now, mm-hmm. and that's your childhood. The guys making the, you know, if they come back and they make um, the Ninja Turtle movies that they came out with five, six years ago, mm-hmm. I mean, those came out probably guys around 30, 35 that were making it, that were, you know, that grew up with that in the 90s, that grew up with the original early 90s, the ooze and all the, yep. you know, the uh, splinter and all yep. these things. and. Um, like I have action figures from when they made the uh, the samurai um, yep. uh, Ninja Turtle ones, and I and like I had all the figurines. And again, they're slowly creeping their way in. I'm like, God, I remember like why did she save these? But then I'm in my head, I'm like, well, I mean, there's some stuff in my kids that I'm like, God, I would hate to like I'm more attached to these than my kids are. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think about that stuff. I'm like, I'm not as attached to that stuff as probably my parents are because that's they still remember me as a kid. And I'm like looking at some of my stuff my son has. I'm like, man, like. I don't want him to give away this because yeah. like that just reminds me of my like little boy who's not yeah. he's turning into a little kid now and it's um I don't know if it makes me feel older I almost feel like I get more attached like it kind of mm-hmm. brings it full circle and it's like cuz you can it's not it's not like you just see it in like a, a um or it's almost like when you see something in a picture yeah and then it comes back into your life years later mm-hmm. but you almost can't believe like it's this pen but I remember seeing this pen this pen in a picture 30 years ago yeah. or when you go into a house that's black and white and then they're like oh this is actually that from that and you're like mm-hmm. no but it's got color like it's just it's like it, it's trippy. well it's context it's putting yeah. something in context for you that you normally can't you're sharing you know uh, toys with your kids like um, my mom gave me the original my brother gave me the original Legos that I grew up with in the 70s and then I gave them to Eli, and he and I sat there and played with them. A space shuttle set of And those Legos. are the same exact blocks you played with the Same before. exact blocks. Now, since then, he's gotten a lot more and new ones, and he loves Legos, and we still play Legos yeah. occasionally. And, uh, but the, you know, I sit there, and I'm, I'm sharing uh, an object and a space and time with him of something I did. Yeah. So it's like there's this wonderful nostalgic reference to it. And, uh, I, I had that the other day with a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Now the puzzle was a puzzle I had as a child. Yeah, and I remember putting it together as a child. But my son, same thing. He's like getting into it, and I just found yeah. myself sitting there like we're finishing this puzzle, and yeah. it was it was weird. Like I haven't done a puzzle in I don't know how long. Yeah. But, um, but to sit there and like move these around, and actually yeah. I'm like this is kind of fun. Like yeah. it's fun to just put the pieces together, and it's yeah. it's a simple concept. And I think now with you know, technology and, and adulthood where it just seems like you don't get to play as much, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, you get to play, it's a different kind of playing, but it's like to go back and simplify down to, um, a board game or a puzzle or cards or something yeah. where it's like, I just, I like, I would love to play a board game. Yeah. I'd love to sit down. Um, I got a monopoly game if there's never been open, just <laughs> sitting there. And it's like, I'd love to just sit down with a bunch of people, get a, get some drinks, maybe, yeah. you know, 
you don't even need music. Just like sit there and just play and talk and just like what you used to do as a kid. Well, it's funny. Um, a lot of times artists think that, you know, the playing is what a lot of artists do because that lets you enter that flow state yeah. where you're not worried about dinner. You're not worried about paying the bills. You're worried about what's going on around you right at that moment. And games are absolutely a part of that. And for kids, I think their development, it's critical for them to learn things, you know, uh, what is right and wrong? What are rules? Uh, maybe sometimes you don't have rules on purpose so that you can do, you can sort of think outside the box. If you don't give kids and adults that play time, that really concentrated time to not concentrate, then uh, they lose out on a lot of creativity. Well, that's what I was talking about when we were talking about before is like just trying to find time to create and think. It's yeah. like I, I've spent so many, so much time just one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. I mean, that's one, of the, again, the, one of the beauties of the yeah. podcast. Like, I don't look at my phone for two hours, whatever, two, yeah. hour, two, three hours, whatever it might be. And you just sit there and you focus on conversation, you focus on people, you focus on words, yeah. you focus on thoughts. And for me, it's like a nice escape during the day. Yeah. And then, especially, and there's different times during the day. Mm -hmm. I've done them in the morning, I've done them late at night. I've, you know, you weren't a part of, I don't think you were a part, no, you were. We did one really early in the morning. Was that with you? Yeah, you and Paul. Paul, and, yeah. Because I did one with Paul, and I did one with Craig and Paul, and both of them were super early. We're like dad yeah. life, like we're in at like six or seven in the morning, and I remember we all rolled in with coffee early. Yeah, that's a different co concept than if I deal with someone that I've started podcasts as late as eight o'clock at night before, yeah. and it's it again, it's different parts of the day, and like to me, I like this like winding down the day, going into the evening, because you're kind of it's almost like a happy hour time, yeah. where you're just like ah, oh, versus nine o'clock in the morning to like even is a different mindset and my yep. energy's different um you know kind of like coffee or booze like yeah. there's and there's a different like different conversation well, biologically you're different at different times of day your yeah. endocrine system has is dumping testosterone and stuff at different in different amounts at different times of day whether you're waking up or you know sort of winding down from a day of effort and uh, i'm sure that impacts your conversation skills it, it's it, yeah and, and i find i'm there's certain times I'm sharper mm -hmm. and there's certain times I drag. And I find yeah. that sometimes my conversations typically earlier in the afternoon, I don't even know. It, it's weird. I have like bursts that are really good. Mm -hmm. It's nice late at night. I feel like I'm just like clear, clear headed, yeah. which seems strange that I don't know. I've never, I, I should probably think about it more as like when, where's my opportune time for podcast, mm -hmm. but I never have because scheduling's different with people. Yeah. And like, I kind of, you know, we have different, you know, different times. It could be typically nine to 11 or 10 to 12 is a time. I have like a, usually one to three, two to four, yeah. you know, four yeah. to six. Um, I've never really seen how it affected or really looked into how it affected my, myself on the podcast. A lot of it's um, guest dependent yeah. too. There's some yeah. guests that I like, I can just hit, there's a few guests. It's like literally I hit record. And I just let them talk because yeah. they go forever. Yeah. You, I, I would deem, is are probably one of the best conversationalists they've had mm -hmm. because the other thing is when you get on podcast, if you, if I'm sitting there asking you questions and asking you questions and asking you questions, then it's like you get away from the podcast. It's more yep. of like a an interview. Yeah, it's like usually if the guest can just take control of the conversation and just lead it, yep. that's even better. Yeah. Well, it takes all the pressure off you to have to define a road path for them to take the. Well, uh, uh, what they're talking about. Yeah, know? and I don't, I don't like having this be an interview because yeah. especially when I know people, if I don't know them well, it kind of becomes an interview because it's almost more like I want to learn more about you. Yeah. But if you know somebody, then it's more of like I just want to like discuss stuff with yeah. you. And to me, it like opened your mind and, and we talk about like the flow state. Like to me, yeah. it's like driving. And there's a reason 
it's not a half hour podcast. Yeah. You don't get into the flow state for, I mean, I think our first one that we did solo by to this day is still the longest one we did. And yeah, it was like almost three hours. It was long. Oh, oh it was 340. Was it really? Wow. Because I remember yeah. we, we kept, because well, the problem was I'm terrible because that clock is the same clock. It was yeah. not working. Cause I never, I never updated in that. Yeah. that the, I remember the time had, it was daylight savings or whatever. And yeah. we had moved the clock back. Yeah. And I just remember looking at him like, oh, we're fine. And yeah. it wasn't the right time. It was an hour back of where I should have. I was supposed to move it forward. Yeah. I never did. And yep. so I kept looking up. And I'm like, oh, we're, oh, we just hit two hours. We're, yeah. we have, we'll go another half hour. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, crap, it's 3.40. Because yeah. both our wives were texting. Like, exactly. Like, where are you o'clock at night. I was like, yeah. oh, no, it's supposed to end yeah. at like 8. So I have a question for you. Yeah, so um, do you take your conversational skills from a particular parent or from something else in your life and your upbringing? Um... Again, I've never thought about this. I would, my dad is more conversational than my mom. My mm-hmm. mom is more um, introverted than my dad. My dad's definitely the more, the gab yeah. of the family. Um, I don't remember growing up, either side of my family was not, that I remember big storytellers. Yeah. We have a weird family. It's kind of like the, I'm like the classic Irish goodbye guy. Like I'm just <laughs> like, all right, see you guys and I'll go out the door. Like I don't yeah. like saying, saying goodbye to everybody. I'm like, yeah. if I, I've been here for four hours. We could have talked during the four hours. I don't want to have the long goodbye walking out to the yep. car. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'd like. I like thinking. I like. I like testing my mind. I like. Um, I grew up with puzzles. I grew up with. Uh, um, I like dealing with like Sudoku's and I like dealing with mind puzzles and mm-hmm. I like doing riddles and I anything that got my mind to think, um, or like the word problems that yep. were like riddles where it's like, well, if you had, you know, what I'm talking about like it's like. You know, Sally and Johnny have this, and this person has this, and they have this many, but this person doesn't have any, and then you try to figure out who has yeah. what, and you get the spreadsheet out. And I like it because it, it got my mind to think. I find that conversation, bringing different people on, it allows me to pick their brains, mm-hmm. allows me to think, it allows me to get different perspectives, it allows me to, um, I don't, I mean, I, I probably have some bias towards guests. I mean, they're mm-hmm. all people that I know are, are interested yeah. in, but at the end of the day, I try not to have an extreme bias it's just more yeah. of who i like so yeah. i've had different walks of life different ages different backgrounds different um anything you could imagine but picking the brains of people to me is fascinating yeah. and yeah. we all have one thing in common we're all at some point in time step foot in my office like i mean yeah. i know it sounds yeah. crazy but you're from the north country or visiting or whatever and i think there's a benefit to that the conversation piece though i think just comes down to I like deep thoughts. I like yeah. talking to people. Yesterday, one of my favorite people in the world to talk to is uh, Craig's wife, actually, Karen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, I hadn't talked to her in a while. We got together yesterday, and it was like just a fresh, fresh, fresh air. But we got to talk, and there's things that I like talking to her, and she there's times she like brings out thoughts that I didn't know about. Yeah. And then I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, well, I like that because <laughs> um, it gets me thinking. But then, yeah. like you said, like where do you get – I, I don't know, 130 something of these and I've never sat down to think like, why do I, where did I get that thought from? I think it's just me. I've always liked conversation. Yeah. Like if I just had coffee and just like sat down and talked to somebody, had a drink and just yeah. sat around the campfire and talked, I just like that. Well, for a lot of people, I, you know, my wife is not a big conversationalist and I grew up in a family where you were either, you were a conversationalist or you were not and introverts and extroverts. And my mother's a huge extrovert. So we spent... 
I grew up with a, uh, I had a great role model to talk, mm -hmm. putting people at ease, you know, growing up in the deep South, having those verbal skills allowed you to get access to do things. And also uh, very regimented, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, thank you, please. There was a real structure around that. And I sort of used that to my advantage. Um, whereas introverts don't, don't have the same tool set, toolkit to work with. Um, your, your ability to converse with people is very disarming. It's very uh, congenial. It makes it very easy to talk to. So that's why the podcast is the perfect format for that. You know, you throw a question out and you say, oh, it takes you down a road. Well, go. You got mm -hmm. three hours. Yeah, you can follow it. it all the way to the end. And, uh, and I think that's what makes this so successful. And it's really lovely to talk through, you know, to be able to say, we're going to talk about anything. Mm -hmm. It might be stars, might be photos, could be. I mean, I had no yeah. notes under your name. Yeah. Like, I don't know. We're just going to ask them. <laughs> we took a cool photo today. I'm going to ask him about it. Like, I know a little bit about people, yeah. but it's, um, I think the, the conversational aspect too, if I, the podcast hundred percent, cause I've had people come on and I can tell. Like I might ask them to come on, like, ah, yeah. I don't know if I want to do it. And I'm like, yeah. that's fine. I'm not going to pressure anybody to do it. But then I might ask them again or I might see them yeah. somewhere like, you want to do that? And, and then there hasn't been one person, at least they have never vocally said yeah. it to me, that has left the podcast. I'm like, God, that was awful. That was way harder than I thought it was going to yeah. be. Everybody's like, oh my God, that was easy. It's and fun. Like, yeah, it I know, should you be just fun. Have to talk. I'm like, exactly. like, well, what do I need to prepare? I'm like, just be able to come and talk. That's yeah. it. Like there's not, I'm not going to challenge you. Yep. What do you feel is the, uh, what do you feel your podcast is missing? Um, I, I think sometimes I, I, I never, I guess my couple things, I've never put someone on the podcast with the idea of this is going to get likes or yep. this is going to get shares or people yep. listening. I don't care. I, my numbers, I just looked the other day, I'm approaching 10, uh, 10,500 wow. downloads, wow. which is cool. Now, the funny thing was a thousand over a thousand of those have come in the last 30 days. So you're starting to see the yeah. like 10% of it. So this is, we're going on a little over a year and a half or two and a half years. 10% has been in the last month. Wow. So when you really space it out, I yeah. mean, our first podcast we did might've been listened to by like 10 people, yeah. which is crazy. So if I put this out, this is at least without any, any work being done, it's probably going to be 40 to 50 people. Yeah. And I've had a few that have gone over a hundred depending yeah. on how they share it and promote it. Yeah. Um, it's what it might be missing is because I always want to do the podcast in person. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to do Zoom. Yeah. I don't want to. I could I could branch out. I could expand out and interview different people because there's mm -hmm. a lot of people I know that don't live here that yeah. would be cool to talk to. But part of me is like, you know what? And I've done Zoom interviews and they're not. It's okay, but it's not the same. In person's the best. It's yeah. definitely the way to go. And there's it, nuances and cues and stuff that are important. Well, I think yeah. was it 70% of uh, language is not no. uh, nonverbal. Yeah. So to me, if I go on a, on a Zoom call and I really can't feel their yeah. presence and, and and there's a lot to it. And I think... That might be something, I don't even want to say I'm missing it because that's yeah. something I've actively chose yeah. not to do. Because some people are like, oh, why don't you have this person or reach out mm -hmm. to this person or DM this person? I'm like, unless you're going to travel or I'm going to travel, yeah. I've only traveled technically twice out of my office, but only one trip. And that yeah. was a couple about a month ago. Um, and partly is because I wanted to do it in their space. Yeah. Uh, kind of what we're talking about with, uh, with the core. I would like to do it in their space. Yeah. And... I think that's part of why I haven't been able to connect it yet is just figuring out a time to go over and do it there. And I think um, that might be what I'm missing is maybe diversifying outside a little mm -hmm. bit because mm -hmm. it's, it's not geared at local people at all. It's yeah. more geared at people I just want to talk to. Yeah. So if you gave me the opportunity to talk to some famous person that lives out in California, that's great. But one of the parameters I put on myself is I would like them in the room. Because yeah. I've had some people say, yes, can we do it over Zoom? And I'm like... 
Uh, are you going to be in, in the area? Meaning this is someone that probably could be in the area or yeah. people that could be in the area. And then it just gets harder to, to you know, solidify a time. So yeah. I'm just like, you know what? No, no big deal. We just won't work out because I really want people – I really want to do it face-to-face. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that's I, – I, maybe – I don't know. I try to have – I don't know. I, I think maybe some other stuff I could do is be more well-rounded and research on certain aspects and then mm-hmm. bring on people with those topics – um, cause I, but I find if I do 137 of them, I'm always 50, typically 50% of the, the people, you yeah. know, and you know, me and you 50%, I have the same, I bring the same background to every single conversation. Now you having a different background than my last guest or my future guest is yep. going to tailor the story. Yep. And I only have so many stories. So sometimes I repeat cause there's a lot of themes, yep. but I don't, I don't know, I guess diversifying people possibly meaning um going out of the area slightly but yep. maybe diversifying my knowledge base to have a better knowledge where then i can ask somebody a deeper conversation or go more in depth on a certain thing yep. uh, one of the things i'm not great at is um current events mm-hmm. partly by design partly by um i don't really know what's going on in the world right now um on a on a macro or micro scale because i just choose not to i have too much stuff going on that yeah. Like I have a few focuses in my life, and that's what I focus on every day. And I, yeah. I don't read newspapers. I don't watch news. I, it just, I probably should be a little more up to speed on that because a lot of people can have good conversations about mm-hmm. um, the world or you know policies. And I try not to do politics, but I think politics that sometimes brings out good talking points depending on what they are. Um, not well, argumentative, but more yeah. of like learning. Well, some of your guests are politically or politics oriented so it's going to naturally come out in those conversations i think that's probably one of the uh, strong suits is that you don't drive a conversation you're not trying to uh, solve something you do, you don't come in and say well today we're going to talk about you know eastern european you know medical philosophy it's like well some crazy you know off weird thing that none of your listeners have a a reference to everything that i think the podcast that i've listened to and i've listened to a few um it's always something that connects them to you mm-hmm. and to the community. And that's very powerful. Um, there, we just don't have a lot of outlets like that. And if you don't, you know, say you turn on the TV set into the local TV stations, um, those are, you know, the Gannett News Service. They're cooked through a certain lens. Whereas this is pretty, uh, it's pretty open, which is really a breath of fresh air. Well, I had, I was talking to someone earlier today, and they're talking about social media, they're talking about marketing, yeah. and talking about like brand and all this. And I was like, well, if you're going to meet me on my podcast, you're going to meet me in person, you're going to meet me anywhere, if you're going to see me on video, yeah. I want someone to be like, no, that's Galen. Like, that's yeah. Galen. That's Galen. And I, what I don't want to do is act different here than I would if I was at you know an event yeah. tonight or if I go home or if I see you on the street or if I see you anywhere, I still yeah. want you to be like, no, that's still Galen. Like, he still yeah. acts the same. You know, Now, maybe I'm, I talk a little bit different on the podcast because I'm in a situation where it brings out longer conversation yeah. and a quick story, but at the end or a joke or something. But yeah. at the end of the day, I don't want anybody to come on here and be like, "Man, he just didn't seem like the guy that I was expecting." Or people come on and be like, "Oh, that was really good." They don't know me, but then they if they start to see me in other places, they're like, yeah. "No, that's kind of the same dude." Yeah. Um, being authentic, and then I don't like if, if things are too polished, and I, and I find like, what do you always focus on when things are too polished? Look at Look at anybody, whether they're political or mm-hmm. whether they're the perfect example is when you have somebody that comes out speaking on behalf of a company or speaking on behalf of the government or speaking yeah. on behalf and they come out and it's so like teleprompter, yeah. there's no, they speak, there's no um, movement in their voice. Yeah. 
I say um all the time. I ramble. I stumble. <laughs> I, I question. I'm like, I look up a lot. And I'm not, it's not because I'm like, can't make eye contact. A lot of times I'm just thinking, I'm like, what the heck was I thinking about? Yeah. And I mean, I know my nuances, but I don't pull them off the camera. Yeah. Yeah. So 99% of the videos I've ever put out are one take. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I want it to be on the, now I might start something and be like, crap, what was I? No, scratch that. Cause I like totally like messed up what I was wanting. Yeah. Not because the delivery was bad. Yeah. It was like, I just kind of went off top. I'm like, let me just get the message. And, but the actual message itself, most of my videos, I, I stumble, I stammer, I like, yeah. you know, I'm, I, sometimes I'm like, man, well, yeah, this. And then they're like, ah, you know, I forgot it's this. <laughs> and, but I like that in there because you yeah. watching it are like, that's, that's a real person, not yeah. Well, that's that's part of authenticity is to see the mistakes on the edges, to see Mm -hmm. the sort of, oh, he stumbled there. Well, I probably would stumble in the same situation. And that's sort of that human connection. And that's really nice. And those polished, you know, sort of monster robots out there Mm -hmm. who just rattle off the exact same language every time. I mean, that's the reason we react to it is because we it's inhuman. It's not it's not real in some respect. It's not they're not being themselves. You are being yourself, whether you're here or out showing a house or out playing with the kids. It's the same Galen across yeah. that. And, and I, I think when you talk about, um, you know, talking or where he got like the gift of gab or whatever, yeah. it's like, I, I don't know. I think a lot of it is the stripped down nature of it, bringing out, um, you know, talking to people is, is is beneficial for, for, I mean, for a lot of reasons. But at the end of the day, it's, I can get the authentic Scott. I can yeah. get the, and, and it, if I was to, I've seen plenty of I've seen plenty of things, when, especially when it comes to, you know, whether it be TV or social media and someone's too yep. polished. Then I look at them like, you know what? They might be great. They might be good. But then this person looks more fun. Yeah. And then that fun person and that person know the same, but this guy's more fun. I'm going with that one. And that's what I found. I've been able to, over the last handful of years, kind of, you know, go from young, kind of uneasy, I say uneasy, but um, not, not confident because I didn't mm-hmm. know what I was really talking about. Or I was second guessing if I knew mm-hmm. what I was talking about because I, again I was in the world of adults now and I was you yeah. know I was this like young adult coming in I was like man I don't know if I can hang with these people that are 10, 20, 30 years older than yeah. me and then it got to the point where I'm like you know what one is they're all people yeah and once you hit a certain point in adulthood everybody's trying to do the best they can then you start to find out that there's people that are older than you that are not as smart as you then you find out there's people younger than you that are smarter than you and then you find out that okay we're all mm-hmm. kind of on the same we're all just a mixed yep. bag. Yep. And then I just got to the point where I didn't, at least in my business, I, I hit a certain point where I knew I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had the confidence where I'm like, well, I can hang with all these people. Yeah. And at that point, I can just be myself because I don't have to sit there and like second guess myself. Man, am I, yep. am I making a fool of myself or am I don't really, I can't come to the table. And even now, if I find that I'm in and above my head in knowledge, I have enough humility and I have enough um, background to say I don't know, yeah. and I and I don't feel like I'm letting someone yeah. down and be like, hey, listen, I'll shoot you straight. Don't know it. Let me, hey, this person will. Let me let me make a connection. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing that you, uh, it's and I think a lot of us go through this. It's like you you don't care about your audience, but you do care about your audience. But this is about you and your experience, yeah. and that is a that's a big difference. A lot of people, and you hear that on podcasts. They're producing content for other people. You're producing content for you and for the people that are on here. And it's... Oh, it's me and you right now. And it really shows up. And that's that level of authenticity is fantastic because Mm -hmm. of that. That's why people want to listen to it. Um, I think the first podcast I did, I thought about people listening for about the first 10 minutes. 
maybe 20. And then it just got really normal. Yeah. And then in my second podcast, third podcast, I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? It's way more fun just to talk to somebody. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm aware. I'm aware that I have a mic in front of me. I'm aware I have headphones yeah. in front of me. So it's not the same as if we were sitting at the coffee shop having a coffee on just a table. Yeah. But for the most part, I don't the conversation's gonna be the same. Yep. Now there might be certain details I don't put address to everybody yeah. if I was to talk to you and name drop or say something yeah. just out of like privacy reasons, but Man, I very rarely censor anything I say on this. Yeah. And the other, the other thing is, like, with no agenda, I don't know what I'm going to say a minute from now. Yeah. No clue. I don't know what I'm going to say 10 <laughs> seconds from now, to be honest. It just kind of spews out of my head. And then yeah. you say something, and that triggers something else. I'm like, well, yeah. let's just go there. Let's go. Exactly. Um, there hasn't been one thing I've ever said on the podcast that I've regretted or taken out either. Yeah. Everything I've never edited anything I've ever said on a podcast because – it's just very it's authentic. I just yeah. like spew it out and let's just roll with it. That's it. That's it. It's it's uh how many you've how many podcasts have you done now? Have they all been with me or have you done others? Um I put together I did a couple with Paul and I thought then, so. Um, yeah. And then uh, what three this makes number three with this you. Three? Wow, yeah. okay. So I think that's about it. I, I love talking and I love talking on podcasts and the pandemic has really you know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts okay. over the past year, um, and I think it's pushed a lot of people to who maybe were forced to spend more time at home or alone or in smaller groups. Uh, I think the the idea of now that it, things are opening up, it's I want to go out and have conversations with other people. The podcasts were just a salve on an open wound that didn't get a, addressed for a year. And part of it is like being in a situation where you're in a room and you're relaxed and you can talk about whatever and people are not going to judge you. They may, they may judge you and you just don't give a shit. But the, uh, the, I, I think the pandemic has really uh, put a focus on that, our need as humans to have conversation and to uh, have that feedback, that back and forth. I didn't. It was weird. As soon as everything kind of started to open up and you didn't have to wear a mask and all the places yeah. going in. I walked into the grocery store the other day and I... I Started to leave my car. I'm like, well, let me grab my mask. Yeah. And I started like walking in. I like kind of glanced and it was like 50 50. And I was like, this is weird, but like I'm just going to do it. And I like walk through with no mask. I'm like, this is, I'm like, am I, it was weird how in a, like a year and a half time span we went from oh, yeah. like, it's, they got masks, they're weird to all of a sudden like, wait, they don't have masks. And like to it think is. about a 15 month span, about a 15 month span yeah. or so, and, and that, our perception and just what we thought was normal completely shifted to the point completely. where and it made and I've thought about this a few times like how how quickly does something become a cultural norm <laughs> that might have been the fastest I think I've ever seen oh I don't think cultural norms can happen very rapidly when you're incentivized you know think of it uh, you could go travel overseas to Asia and people wear masks all the time yeah that is not uncommon whereas for us in Western civilizations very uncommon until now mm -hmm. now it's you see people with a mask on no big deal yeah and in fact people without masks in certain places like grocery stores or hospitals suddenly becomes really odd and uh, but I think that's that's part of uh, our evolution of a uh, culture is shifting to accommodate that yeah. and there was um, I've seen photos and read some stories about after the uh, uh, the flu epidemic in 1918 and where mask wearing uh, was really a norm for a long time after that. And then it slowly fizzled out as there wasn't a need for it. How long did that go for? The, uh, the, uh, the mask wearing. 
Because it, it was a few years. It was a few years, yeah. yeah they went, oh, well, because they had kept having wave after wave of additional infections and people that must dying. have been like what, immigrants coming in, waves of immigrants, or no? Well, no, it's just uh, just like uh, where we had uh, the waves here last year. So you had uh, like spikes and stuff. Spikes and stuff is the same thing, depending on uh, the region, where you're at, uh, uh, sort of what was happening in that particular geographic area. Do you know how long they had masks on, though? Oh, it was a while. The article I read, I want to say, I don't remember. I don't remember. My, my guess would probably be two to three years. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit. Um, a couple of uh, interviews I've heard with uh, specialists in culture and changes, uh, his, historians, said that uh, right now it's going to take us a year to really get out from under the cultural shift of being separated from other people and he said oh 2023 it's going to be like the 1920s it's going to be uh you know hedonism and craziness because all of that will be all those restrictions will be gone and it'll be out of our system there will be because right now we're sort of in the hangover from it so i ordered tickets to one of my favorite bands Mm -hmm. um a couple days ago and i was so excited like i haven't like i love live music i haven't heard live music I actually went to a concert at Higher Ground in February of 2020. Yeah. And I went, actually, I think it was Valentine's Day or day right around that time. A month later, we were like shut down. Yeah. And it was crazy because I, I went to that, didn't think twice of it. Yeah. Everybody's just hanging out, normal, normal concert going scene. The concert I'm going to is also at Higher Ground. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this week, like I, it's gonna be weird, but like I'm so ready just to go listen to music. Yeah. And just You're bookending the pandemic with two concerts. That's yeah. And, and it's, uh, same place and and um, I'm just looking forward to because and we have a few people going and like there's yeah. a group of like eight of us going I'm like okay let's I'm like I'm ready to go now like let's yeah. go because I think we're just like we've been like kept in so long that going to see that sporting yeah. events um, just going back to kind of like normal functions like even even seeing people like to give people being more apt to just shake hands it's yeah. like awesome like it's just I mean it's weird but like yeah. you go from so long of just like waving and then you start like maybe fist pumping and now you're like shaking hands and hugging and it's yeah. like okay it's it's nice to kind of get back to normal human yeah. interaction a little bit but yeah. long um, overdue i it's i have a sort of a uh last summer i had that trip to go to the tetons and we, oh yeah yeah we changed it instead of flying because of the risk of infections we drove across the country and seeing that that was really eye-opening because you know, that was the heart, the depths of everything being locked down. And then I, we get in the, the three of us get in a car. Was it April or May? This was uh, August. Oh, was that long? Okay. Yeah. So about a year ago? So about... Tetons are in... Uh, the Tetons. Cal- Tetons? That's yeah. California? No, it's uh, Wyoming. Wow. Okay. I'm really off. What is... Um, is it Tahoe? No, what's... Tahoe's in California. Okay. I'm, I'm getting my national parks yeah. all mixed up. Okay. So Wyoming? It's, it's just south of uh, Yellowstone. Okay, so Yellowstone is in Wyoming also? Yeah. Montana? Uh, I think it crosses both, I think. Does it? Okay. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not super up on where things lie out there. So, But uh, yeah, it was a fantastic trip. But seeing the changes like from you know, New York. And also, I traveled with you know, a medical professional. And it was like, I got scolded a lot. You know, wash your hands more. You know, put the, you know, uh, you know, you need to wear your mask in there. And so I got, she kept me on my toes. Uh, Stacy Carter Kelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, but the uh, the trip was interesting, seeing the sort of cultural differences of how they were handling it. As you got farther and farther west, you saw the loosening and loosening of the social norms. Of it was, you know, we would stop for gas in the middle of like Kansas, 
and there would be nobody in the town with a mask on. Mm-hmm. Yet we had just come from New York where it was like raging here and nobody was yeah. leaving their houses and it was like completely different. And it was like you really see the cultural divide in our country, you know, even even then. This is, you know, in August. Well, I went to Texas uh Texas I went to Texas and Florida in April of this year. Mm-hmm. That was before everything opened uh, kind yeah. of was starting to open up and um down there it was just like very loose and yeah. Those were one of the two looser areas, yep. and but it was weird. You go from one extreme to the other, and it's, again, you see the same thing. It's like fifty states. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Yep. Uh, like my sister in Florida, she's like, man, like nobody has masks on. Like if you yep. go in and like stores and stuff, like some do. You went to the grocery store and about fifty fifty, and this was like three months ago. Yeah, and now we've just gotten to that point. But it's, yeah, I um, yeah, know it's it's uh, now no, the it's called the Tetons. The Tetons. Yeah. Tetons. Yeah. How big is that national park? It's huge. Massive. Massive. I, I saw something that, and I don't know if this is true. This was, it must be true. It was on a graphic. Yep. So it was on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> but we saw this. The Adirondack Park yeah. can house like multiple national parks. Yes. And when I, so I, I always think of like Yellowstone or um, Yosemite yeah. or Arca- is it Arcadia? Arcadia. Yeah, Arcadia. Arcadia. Maine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Maine. I always think of those that, Especially the ones out west. Like, yeah. These things are massive. They're so much bigger than the Adirondacks. And you realize, yeah. like, no, 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 the Adirondacks are huge. Yeah. So when you go to these places, um, and again, when I, th- when I think of the Adirondacks, like, you can drive from one side to the other in a couple hours. So yeah. it's like, it's big, but it's not like insurmountable. But it's, it's contiguous, but it's also, um, there's a high population density in, in New England, mm-hmm. more so than in the west. In the west, things are so far apart. And also, you know, the mountains are taller. And, uh, you know, it's the continent. You're at the edge of the continental divide. So it's, uh, it's dramatic, just dramatic. And I think the sense of the space out there, because of the expanse of it, is so much greater. It feels much bigger. Now, how, how, did the, how does, like, out there, national parks, how does it relate to the Adirondacks? The trees as dense. You said the mountains are taller. Because um, this is older, the Adirondacks yeah. are considered an older yeah. mountain it's, range. It's but. very different. Uh, different set of trees and stuff. I mean, we hiked. You know, uh, we stayed in. Shit, I forget the name of the uh, little town right outside of where the park was. But the um, you know we were at five thousand feet in the town, and then you wow. go hiking up into it. So the baseline uh, elevation out there for just in the valleys of the mountains is a, almost a mile high. So, so you when know, you get to the top of the mountain, it is like clear air. Oh yeah, it was clear at the in the valleys. Um, the I was shocked at how much the uh, altitude impacted uh, physical performance. It really was. It thank God Stacy said let's plan a couple days to acclimate, you know, sleep and get some rest before we went hiking. And uh, so w- when you go up to higher elevations, it's harder to breathe, right? It's harder to breathe. Yeah, you get tired easier. Um, is it because uh, it's less oxygen? Yeah. Okay. Less oxygen. And uh, uh, Stace, we brought a, uh, an oximeter, a pulse oximeter for our fingers. And we were at night when we were uh, uh, having dinner, we'd see who had the lowest or highest numbers. And, you know, here you can sit down and be at 100%, 90% oxygen in your body. Uh, the highest any of us had up there was 70. Wow. <laughs> 80%. It was that big of a difference. You always think like um, when they go play at da- uh, Denver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you get the guys like breathing oxygen on yeah, the sidelines. Absolutely. Because they're at uh, mile high, so 5280, right? So yeah. um, so when, when you go hiking up, are, are, how's the terrain? And like, is, the Adirondacks is a very dense mountain, right? Mountain range? Or is it a bit similar? Um, 
it's kind of hard. it's just very different it's different rock formations different kinds of trees there there are much uh fewer trees here it's much more dense so like when you're hiking if you go to mount uh mount marcy or uh, algonquin or mount Wright or something you're deep in a forest on a trail for hours at a time in mm-hmm. out there you were in the forest for a very small amount of time a lot of the trails were up on the crests of uh of buttes and overlooks you're in valleys where there are no trees along whole sections and uh and you see that in you know in the photos i shot you'll see that as well lots of uh uh you know craggy cliffs and rolling hill rolling uh, sort of meadows uh with birds and flowers and stuff but very few trees so you get these dramatic expanses plus the the sort of plateaus we would you know we hiked up this one uh, area called death canyon and we hiked up camped then hiked up on top of the plateau that was on the top edge of the canyon. It was another couple thousand feet up. And then from there, you had these views out to the west where you could see 30, 40 miles So, so the views were better on the hike. Because okay. the Adirondacks, you hike up, a lot of times you're just looking at trees. Yeah. Because the views aren't better. It's sort of, it's, you know, uh, they're qualitative. Different, but it, they're but different. It, they're just fundamentally they're different. Much more open. Yeah. Because yeah. I always find when I go, I'm not a... I would love to go hiking out there. I I never really get excited to go in the Adirondacks, and yeah. I have hiked a little bit. And yeah. I know you've done a lot of hiking. I always find I probably should because it quiets my mind a little bit. But sometimes when I get more than a half hour, forty minutes up, I get really bored. Yeah. And then I like I get at the top and like it looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I appreciate it as much as other people. And part of me is I get down and I always have the same thought when I get down. Like why did I just waste time going up and down? So I obviously don't find enough like yeah of the of the of you know why people do it but i mean i get why people like doing it i just i always find that i don't get the satisfaction out of it it's kind of the same thing yeah. like do i want to go sit on a beach and relax or would i rather be like thinking and doing and yeah. i'd rather sit inside and do a puzzle to be honest and sit on the beach and like sit yeah. cold in the hot you know sun so um but i think for me it's just the entertainment factor yeah. where i mean the conversation with people is good and, and that but i'm like man i could do the same like me i could do the same thing probably on a golf course or i could probably do the same thing you know, just doing like some yard work and yeah. then feel like I accomplished something. But um, I get, I definitely get why people hike. Cause I know a yeah. lot of people that are for the 40, are you, you're not a 46 or are you? Nope. Nope. I'm about halfway done. So you plan on doing that? Oh, maybe it's not a goal of mine. Um, if I hiked all 46 of them, it'd be great. I've done all the tough ones uh, taking pictures. So of course you have. <laughs> uh, that makes it a lot easier to do the other half. It's um, such a bright well thing to say. Well, yeah. I started with the hardest first and yeah. then I just like, well, it's funny. The very first one I did, uh, Stacy called me. She goes, hey, on uh, you know uh, Father's Day or June 21st, do you want to come hike uh, Mount Allen? I'm like, sure, I'll do it. You know, get up at four in the morning, be there at five, hike all day and come back. And then at the, afterwards, I'm like, well, that was grueling and nasty. Let's do it again. And I'm like, she's like, that's the hardest one there is. And I'm like, really? I'm like, really? fantastic. What is it, Mount Allen? Mount Allen. Well, that's the one that most people feel is the um, uh, least... Uh, least exciting because it's like a, a super long hike in through water and mud and then you have this steep climb to a pretty mediocre view and then you have to turn around and do it all back again i, I think i would actually enjoy the water part because that's yeah. exciting to me it's like yeah. when you just sit there and like walk and walk it's like dirt rock tree yeah. dirt rock tree. <laughs> i mean there, there is i do get something like we went up my sisters or one of my sisters well my sisters were up both of them yeah. and uh, we went to go hike this I'm like let's we want to go hiking. I said great. So we did like this little little mountain yep. that we were to the top in like 
30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait, start to finish. I can go up, do my thing, get bound down. We're going to probably spend no more than an hour and 15 minutes on there. And then yep. we just go get lunch and have a beer. And I'm like, I'm in. Yeah. Because I, I got more out of like, it was good. I got like the hike in, but it was like an hour. I'm like, I'm good. Like yep. I... Well, I find in some of these, like the conversations we have along the way are amazing because it's like a podcast. Yeah. Same three or four people, but you're going to be doing it for eight hours. You might as well have talk about something. But also there's a meditative quality where you get in your mind and you start, you know, thinking about things in your life. And because it's somewhat strenuous, uh, some of the hikes we started at 11 o'clock at night to be in the summit at sunrise. There is nothing to see at 11 o'clock at night to 5 a.m. in the middle of a forest. And uh, so you have to sort of, you have to be comfortable with yourself in that respect. But uh, doing it with other people is definitely the way to go. I, I think the, at some point I think I should do it. I think, um, like, do you meditate at all? No. no. I always find that I, I, I don't know if I'd be good at it, but I find that times I probably should or times yeah. where I just have to like relax and just, just like I said, I'm trying to, I'm almost right now trying to slow my life down a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of it is for the clarity. It's for it's for the thinking. It's the headspace. It's the flow state. It's like I need to just to take a little bit off my plate and just focus and kind of almost like take a step back, scan everything, and be like, yep. okay, now we can go down this path. And it's weird. I've never had to do this before, but it's it's noticeably a challenge right now. It's noticeably needed, and it's also a challenge for me yep. right now. Yep. So a lot of that is something that it's it's tough, but it's like another thing i'm just diving into but the mount climbing up a mountain probably would help me yep would be a good thing um, are you doing long workouts no. are, all right there you go because oh I, I would not be like in the shape to, i mean i could get up i would do it but it's like well what, I, what i'm saying is like uh so like paul and coda yeah, and a i paul workout yeah yeah so our workouts the the shortest ones are 20 minutes you know mm-hmm. and then they just go on like the one we're training for in august did paul tell you about that one no the, I saw Coda the other day. He said you guys were doing some. You guys ran out in the humidity one night, and he goes, "It was just like came back and was just like sweating." Oh yeah, sweating. So we've been doing a lot of trail runs, like run up the mountain and then run down as fast as you possibly can. Well, I run down as fast as I possibly can. They run down safely. Um, the we're uh, either I found it or Scott or Craig, someone found it and forwarded it to Paul. This guy on YouTube had said, "I'm going to run one mile every hour for 24 hours." And then we thought about that and we're like, oh, we got to do it. I'm coming. Uh, this is going to come full circle in a second. So we're th- uh, uh, I failed running an ultra a couple of years ago. So what we were thinking Ultras of. Ultra how many miles? Hundred and- uh, over 26. Anything over 20, anything over a marathon is considered an ultra. Oh, okay. So uh, a bunch of us went and tried to run one in uh, New Hampshire. It was 30, 30 some odd miles. Coda was the only one who finished. And I think he did it just in pure anger and spite that and, sounds uh, like a coda thing it sounds like a coda um but this one we're like well why don't we just start at paul's house and we'll just run one mile every hour for 24 hours and uh we got to thinking about it that's like fun maybe i'll maybe i'll do two miles an hour and try and get my ultraing that would do 48 miles in 24 hours and you have to think about it it's a very different kind of workout it's like all right so i can run a mile in eight nine minutes well you've done this not yet I'm going to this fall though Local or at a actual race? Uh, local. We're just going to do it. This is it. just something you guys are training to do one yeah. night. Yeah. And so a lot of the uh, things that we're training for is that long grind. Because the backside of that is you get that sort of euphoria, but your body responds very differently like meditation. It's like 
God, I go spend a 45 minute workout, you know, uh, doing thrusters and running 400s for 40 minutes. And then when I sit down after dinner and it's like my body is at one with the world, totally calm. Because your body gets in a flow state. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, and with age, it's gotten much easier and, uh, it's harder to to get in the flow state. It's easier to get in the flow state, but it's also, um, you know, it's harder to sprint and bodies get old. They break down. So those kinds of long grindy sort of workouts just are a sweet spot as, as I have become an older athlete. How, how many hours do you think it would take if you're running? Because in my eyes, running a mile every hour, I would I would deem would seem more than doable. Oh yeah, like I Completely. like and I, and I don't want to like I'm really just thinking about it. Like even if you ran a relatively slow nine to ten minute mile, because mm-hmm. it's just a mile. Like yep. you could walk it and you'd be you know every you mile. can walk it in fifteen minutes. Yeah. Think about that. You could walk a mile. Now the difference is is your recovery. How are you going to handle? What are you, are you? How are you going to keep from getting cold? Yeah, and that's, stiff. That was where I was. thinking. It's a very different and mindset. the sleep aspect. Oh yeah. Because at some point you start you start seeing things because yeah. like you're middle of the night and you're like. But yeah, we're all well versed in Ragnars, so uh, we've done enough of those that uh, it shouldn't be a problem. So we'll keep. But each if you other go up. to two miles an hour, that changes the game a bit. Completely. Completely. Because then you go and you're trying to finish. I would deem probably sub 20 mm-hmm. at that point, which is already, and again, that's a lot of pounding. And then all of a sudden it's like, I would think it's going to take you 20 minutes to at least to 25 just to come down from the run. Yep. And then at that point you're getting like the butterflies. I got to go back. Got to go back out and do it again. Because yep. one mile you kind of do it and you can almost sit and like hang out for 40 minutes and be like, Yep. Oh, we got to go what in five minutes? Yeah, okay, that's fine. Yep. So it's interesting. So what do you do for that 40 minutes? And it's like, oh, maybe put on Star Wars, the whole series, and watch it all night or something, or, you know, grill out, or, you know, maybe, you know, do you jump in the hot tub? Or maybe you don't want to get that loose in, in between your runs. Actually, the, a movie idea sounds probably, like, the best, because then it almost mm-hmm. feels like you're still, like, in a state mm-hmm. where, if, like, every hour you just did something different. Yeah. It'd be kind of like, oh, hot tub. Next hour I'm going to do that. And I don't think you get into a flow where you're just, yeah. like, Run, come back, watch a series. Run, come back, watch an episode. And, and then you kind of just get in this back and forth. Yep. I think that might be easier, especially if you're on... Like, I remember when I watched Ozark, like, yep. I was in it. Oh, and yeah. I don't watch a lot of series, but um, have you seen Ozark? Uh-huh. Yeah, you just start, like, watching it, and you just start you getting... Binge. It's you, like Breaking Bad. Once you oh, get into it, yeah. you can't stop. And you, and, but it's it puts you at a certain level of, um, like comfort mm-hmm. or a certain level of just like familiarity when you're just watching this episode over and over again. So I think that would happen if you're running. Yeah. The two miles, two miles to me, to me even though it's fifth double yeah. the run, the impact is greater than double. Oh yeah. I would agree with that. But see, but then you do 48. Now nah, might as well run two more and do 50. Oh yeah. I know you'd sit. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> the last one you just do up here. It's four miles. You can't help last it. Last hour you got four miles. Well, that's, and that's one of the things we keep debating about. Do I run those four miles in the first two hours? The extras. That way I can tail off overnight and run less and less so that it's less pounding on your body. So you'd almost do like a floating two miles. You just have to have it done within the yeah. 24 hours. So, yeah. But the thing is you have to start. Everybody starts at the top of the hour at the same time. So if, so if it takes you 25 minutes to run two miles and it takes me eight minutes to run one mile, we both have done our hour's worth of running. But uh, so, you know, we're trying to figure out. So if I did, you know, two, you know, two miles every hour and then for 
two hours, I do three miles. And then I can go to two again. And then, uh, and then maybe, you know, maybe do one. To hit there, that 50. To hit the 50. Wait, so you would say you just have to have 50 hours and 24 hours. 50 miles and 24 hours. 50 miles and 24 hours. So yeah. you're, it doesn't even have to be two miles an hour. It just has to average out to two miles. and, and, and exactly. Two. exactly. So you could say, I'm going to just take a nap for this hour. And next hour, I'm just going to run four. Yeah, but you... Uh, I mean, at some point, I don't think that's a good strategy. Well, or, well, I was thinking like, okay, so if this hour I have to run one mile and next hour I have to run one mile, why don't I start at the 50-minute mark, run my mile, start the next hour, run my mile, and then I get a big, long chunk of time off. Can you do that? I don't know. We haven't, we haven't okay, figured out Okay, I was going to wonder, if you said at the start of every hour, then yeah. it's good. But that's the way it had to start. You, If you don't start your run at the top of the hour, you fail. So you, it's like a, it's like when you're doing an EMOM, like yeah. a CrossFit EMOM. Exactly. And it's, say it's 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Say, yeah. Let's do 10, easy yeah. numbers. And it's a pretty tough number to hit. Well, you start on the minute every single time, and by the time you hit minute nine, like it's done. Yeah. Because minute ten, I can do it at the thirty-second mark, and I yeah. get an extra thirty-second break. Exactly. So it's always that little cheat. Like you just gotta get to that last one, because exactly. then you can milk that last round a little yep. longer, because you don't have the eleventh minute. And that's. I get what you're saying though, because you would have to. It's just it's a weird. Yeah. But it's and that's part of the challenge is you want to keep it interesting. Um, I've had we've had some Ragnar runs where I I can think of one in particular. I had a two point three mile run. And it took me uh, 45 minutes because I was, I was so injured from other runs and had no sleep and hadn't eaten well. And I just bonked on the run. And I, I essentially just about walked it. And I came in, I was sort of a little hallucinatory and I was a little sort of out of it. And uh, so it's the, the miles will catch up with us at some point. And it's like, where do you, know, how do you plan for that? And Could you do... I'm gonna say because you would do it. <laughs> Could you just do one when there's no time limit? Yeah. But I'm saying you do it every hour until you just can't do it anymore. You give up, yeah. And either you fall asleep or you know what I mean. Like you yeah. could just say like, oh, I'm, I fell asleep and missed my alarm to get up. Yeah. Possibly, possibly. But I mean, I would start with the 24 first. Yeah. See. Um, <laughs> well, there is a race out there. Uh, it Courtney DeWalter, uh, she and another guy were finishing it. It's uh, it's very similar. It's like every. Uh, Every hour you have, to, or every X number of minutes, you have to run a 5K. And you just keep doing it and doing it until one person stops. Until, until there's only one person left. Well, there was, there was a couple guys I saw that did a hero workout every hour on the hour for a day. Yeah. And you pick whatever one. But a lot of those are longer workouts. Yeah. And, in, and that doesn't require, like, I, I would think running, you can pace yourself. But it's like, okay, I got to lift a certain weight. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really pace that. Like you still have to do that yeah. physically that work. No, and, and that's it. So you that's can't it. lift it slow. You could walk slower or run slower, but you can't lift it slower because you yeah. might have to take that full force to get it up. Exactly. So. Exactly. No, the hero workouts. That's obvious. That's definitely an interesting uh, concept to do one every hour for a day. I forgot. I think the, the people I saw do it. I forgot who it was. I want to say it was like out in Boston area, and they did it. It might have been like on uh, Memorial Day or something. Yeah. Like they, they ended up doing something like that. There's. I don't, there's a race, um, it was on Netflix a few years ago and I forgot the name of the, um, the document. The Barclay. That's it. (laughs) Did you do that? I have not done it, but I have. It's in Tennessee. Yeah. I have run portions of it. So my grandmother. The the actual trail. The actual trail. Okay. So my grandmother. It's called what? The Barclay? The Barclay. Um, in a little town called Wartburg, Tennessee. Which is right outside Knoxville. Yeah. 
right outside. Yeah, it's between. Uh, is it near Oak Ridge? Yeah, it's right outside of Oak Ridge. So my my family, I have family in Oak Ridge, mm-hmm. and when I was watching the documentary, they started yeah. saying like, "Oh, we're right." I'm like, "It's right," and nobody knows about this race. Yeah. So uh, like the locals probably don't even know about it. No, they don't. Like when I uh, I visited my grandmother who. Uh, uh, is in Warburg. And I was like, yeah, Gina and I are going to go run a section of the Barkley over near a brushy mountain. There's a state penitentiary there. And, uh, she's like the Barkley, what is that? And I'm like, it's this crazy trail race. And so I had to explain it to her and she's like, did not get it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's it, what way is it? in the mountains. It's four, it's five laps. You have to do, it's one lap clockwise, one counterclockwise, one in the day and night. So you have to do Two clockwise runs, one day, one night. Two counterclock, one day, one night. And I think the fifth one is something else. I, uh, I don't remember all the rules. <clears throat> it was, it was like him to pick pages out of books and bring them down that's to how, prove that's how they you knew made you it. Did it. Yeah. It's like they gave you a book number and said, they, they put they scattered books around, but they yeah. might say you're page 21. So you'd yeah. have to re- rip out all the 21 pages. Yep. Like 21, the page number 21, 21 out from out every book. book. Yeah. Uh, which is a genius idea. Yeah. Um, did you watch? You said you didn't watch the documentary. Oh yeah, I've seen the documentary. Oh yeah, it's it's yeah. crazy. And it's like, crazy, and it's just like yep, yeah, we just park at this gate and the yellow gate. It's when we were there, there were a lot of people training for it. There were like runners who were camping out and just running. The, the trails are beautiful. It's a spectacular. I place. would love to read. Or I'd love to watch it again to get the whole rules. But like yeah. the, the when they, the year they did the documentary, like yeah. three people finished, and they said like. There's only like an X amount of people who have ever finished this. Yeah. Um, and I forgot, I think it's five loops around. And I know it has to do with clockwise, counterclockwise, mm-hmm. day and night. But if there yeah. was a fifth one, and I forgot what the fifth one was. Mm-hmm. Um, that might have just been like you get to take a pick. But yeah. it was something crazy about it. It was it was pretty outrageous. Yeah, it was great. I'm about to sneeze. Excuse no, you're good. The, so the Barkley. Yeah. yeah, I forgot what the name. Was it called the Barkley? I think. Ugh. No, it's fine. Okay, there you go. I, um, I don't. I don't remember. It was, I thought it was something different. Or the hardest race in the world. It was something Yeah, the Barkley Marathon. The Barkley. I thought it was always called that. But No, I mean the, the name of the documentary. Uh, yeah, I so think the it's... the Barkley, you're spot Yeah, on. but it's the... Yeah, it's the hardest race in the world or something like that. It's got a funny little name to it. And, and it was... Because uh, I just remember like people sleeping, but then they're like, no, you got to go up and run because um, you had to do it in a certain time period. Yeah, and, like, yeah. The time it took to go around one loop was like a yeah. long time. So it was like you kind of... You had some t- buffer time, but it was enough yeah. to like get like dry socks and dry shoes on and go back out again. Yep. I don't know. It was just it was bizarre. But to have a time limit, I mean, really, you know, you have to, you have to run at a certain pace and that's, yeah, that's a killer. I'm, and five, you know, five hour, five miles on trails in the forest oh, at night, up and over, up and over. It's easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. There you go. You're done. And that's what I think a lot of people were. They got lost and couldn't make yep. it back in the time period. And like, that's cause it. you had to run, I'm going to deal in perfect race, but yeah. pretty darn close to your pathway. And it, it's easy to get off trail. Easy. It's very similar. Those trails are almost identical to the Adirondacks. So, And, and I think that, and I, I obviously ran it, but I think the route you run is the same route. It just depends on if you run yeah. day and night in reverse or, or forward. Yeah. Um, but it was actually, again, it was like the CrossFit Games this past year when they had them all run down and they yeah. got down. Like, now you got to run back. back. And they never told yeah. them about that. That was like, great. Oh, crap. And, that was great. Um, but I think like some of that stuff is just insane. Like that would have been right up your alley. You've been like, yes, yes. Ha- <laughs> only halfway done the race. Let's go. I would have passed out right there and then I'm out. DQ oh, me. I'm man. done. Um, well, Scott, wrap it up here. Yeah, perfect. I don't want to hit perfect. the 340 to be respectful to our. Uh, yeah. Well, we can do it again. Our genius. Yeah, I love this. That's, so. that's it. We 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 uh, we get the knowledge bomb from Scott. I didn't even get to ask you all your. 
I'm sure you did some stuff over COVID that you got into even more so than oh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, so, macro photos and shit. We'll do that next yeah, time. Sounds good. All right, Scott, I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Episode 137, Galen Trombley Show. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.